This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN, Columbia. Good morning to you, good day, 
Good afternoon. Wherever you might be, whenever it might be, as you listen to this radio program, my name is Mike Hagan, and this is Radio Orbit. You're listening to it. It's Monday night, 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. every week. Tonight, the 20th of March, the vernal equinox. Wonderful day. We'll talk about that a little bit later. First off, a uh, big thank you to Debbie Johnson. Wonderful stuff, as always, closing out the Ruby series on uh, Free Range Radio Theater every Monday, 10 p.m. until 11. And next week, amazing, cool stuff. Uh, Deb's going to present uh, the BBC's production of The Hobbit. And then I'll come on the air afterwards, and I will talk about The Hobbit. And uh, for those of you who are listening to the program over any length of time, you'll know I'm talking about that interesting uh, paleontological find, uh, archaeological find in... Um, Indonesia last year. There's some follow-ups to that, so we'll talk about that maybe uh, next week. But anyway, great stuff uh, from Debbie, and I look forward to hearing The Hobbit next week. All right, so tonight, the guest for this evening will be Michael Tsarion. And you may remember Michael from last December. He was on the program on the 12th of December just last year, about three and a half months ago. And before we talk about Michael, I want to send a big thank you out, first of all, to John Major Jenkins for another wonderful program last week. And John was on the program as well uh, in January, but we did another program last week, and he's just uh, fascinating and, and, and really articulate and friendly and just a really nice and uh, interesting fun person to have a conversation with so anyway big thanks to john and we're going to do a show sometime in the future not too far from now probably we'll probably do it in uh i don't know a couple three months something like that but uh, john major jenkins and myself and jay widener are going to do a program together it'll probably be around the time when jay's new documentary comes out uh called uh the odyssey uh and it has to do with uh, this whole 2012 phenomenon that we've been talking about a lot lately. And anyway, it's going to be a, uh, a fascinating uh, video that Jay's producing. He's interviewed all kinds of people that are involved in some way, shape, or form with this uh, interesting cultural phenomenon that seems to be happening. And it should be a really fun an interesting thing to uh, to watch, and we'll have uh, we'll have Jay and John Major Jenkins on the air in just a couple of months to talk about that program that they're uh, working on and whatever else is uh, is happening in their worlds at the time. Okay, so anyway, tonight, as I said, Michael Tsarion, uh returning from a previous appearance back on the 12th of December. A lot to talk about back then, and we decided to do it again, pick up where we left off tonight. We'll be talking about the Irish origins of civilization. And Michael will clarify that, obviously, but it's a fitting topic for the day. It is the vernal equinox, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, but it's also just a few days after St. Patrick's Day. So let's do it. We'll talk tonight about the Irish origins of civilization. Uh, with Michael Tsarion in just a little while, probably about 50 minutes from now, we'll have Michael on the air, okay? Uh, he has a new book uh, to be released pretty quickly as well. I'm not sure. I don't think it's quite quite on the market yet, but anyway, and I think that's the actual ti uh, title of it. It's called, or it's uh, 
to be called The Irish Origins of Civilization. So it should be an interesting conversation tonight with Michael. All right, also, <clears throat> uh, music tonight provided by Leek, my good friend Henrik Palmgren from Sweden. And a big thank you as well to Lucas Kratzbach. Wonderful music last week accompanying uh, John Major Jenkins. And, of course, all that stuff, if you want to uh, take a listen, just hop on the web, type in www.mikehagen.com, and then click on the archives page, and uh, my good friend Larry Norager, if I know him well enough, will have everything posted up there nicely, so you just have to click on this or that, and you can listen or download to the program from last week or any of the other previous programs that we've done over the last couple of years. They're all available on the web at MikeHagan.com. Just click on the archives page, all right? Okay, what else? Um, yeah, uh, Henrik Palmgren. His music is amazing, but he also runs a really interesting website that is called www.red-ice.net. That's red-ice.net. And it's a, uh, a news and information site, Red Ice is, but he also has a little section of that site uh, for his artwork. And if you take that website, red-ice.net, and just put a slash at the end of it, and then write or, or type in the letters L-E-E-Q, leak, uh, then you'll go right to his music and uh, artwork section of the uh, website. And you can download songs uh, only a, a couple of clicks away from there. But anyway, he's a really talented musician, and we're going to be playing some more of his music tonight. We featured him uh, a few, uh, a couple months ago, as a matter of fact, and we'll do it again tonight. And I'm going to be playing some of his stuff that's uh, a little bit uh, older than the stuff we played last time. I've been listening to it for the last few days, last few weeks, as a matter of fact, and we'll play some, some new old stuff from Leek, Henrik Palmgren. And again, one more time, www.red-ice.net. And uh, we should certainly mention Michael Tsarion's website as well, and that is www.terascopes.com. Terascopes.com. All right, so what else is happening here? Thanks for the nice emails, always. Uh, every week I appreciate it. Thank you very much. For everyone who writes in or drops stuff off at the station, or gets information to me through any number of different venues. Uh, thanks, I appreciate it. And hello to everybody else listening over the web and uh, listening from the podcast that is uh, working out quite well. So thanks for checking it out, and thanks for helping us smooth out the bumps as we learn uh, to utilize the technology. We're getting better at it. And uh, I test it myself now. I have this whole iTunes, iPod thing going on. And I love the fact that I can, you know, download podcasts and all these things just sort of show up in your mailbox and you can decide what you want to listen to and what you don't. But anyway, of course, I always put mine in there just to make sure that it works and it seems to be working. So uh, for those of you that are using it, good. I'm glad. And let me hear from you. Okay. All right. What else? Um Speaking of this uh, technological side of the whole radio orbit business, um, a big thanks, of course, to Larry, Larry Norger, my good friend, my brother, 
and the brains behind the website and everything else that's happening on the technological side of this program. Uh, there are big changes coming with the website really soon. And uh, Larry has just outdone himself as usual. And I don't know how I've gotten uh, so lucky, but he's an amazing guy and a wonderful friend. He's an advisor. He helps me out. He gives me advice on the show. Uh, he, has a, he has an ear for music that you can't believe and uh, is a quite accomplished musician himself. And uh, anyway, if you want to take a look at this, go to the website. Go to MikeHagan.com, and, and he's got something up there right now that's on, like, I think, the uh, there's an announcements, a uh, little announcements block uh, right on the front page there. And I'm not sure all this stuff is functional. In fact, I'm sure it's not, but uh, uh, you can certainly get a good look at it, what we're about ready to do. And again, always input and feedback. Welcome and uh, request it. All right, <clears throat> so check that out. Let me know what you think. There's going to be all kinds of great new interactive components, live chat, bulletin boards, forum, music archives, subscriber section with a bunch of other cool stuff. Anyway, Larry, amazing as always. Thank you. And everybody else out there, check it out at MikeHagan.com. And then um, uh, look at that announcement section on the front page. And if you have anything you want to tell me about it, uh, just send me a note. All right, And the email address that you can reach me at is Orbit Radio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, Orbit Radio at AOL.com. And uh, I'd love to hear from you, okay? All right, the phone number here in the studio is 573-874-5676. If you have anything on your mind, uh, give me a call at the break. We'll put some music on in a few minutes here. And uh, otherwise, we'll just move along, all right? We've got Michael Tsarion coming up in just a little while. And let me tell you who else is coming up in just the next few weeks. Next week, John Lash, uh, long overdue and much anticipated by myself and a number of other listeners I know out there. So anyway, John Lash coming up next week, and it will fit in well with the, uh, with the topic that Michael and I are going to be talking about tonight. So if you want to get um, some information on what John does and what he's about Get on the web at www.metahistory, M-E-T-A-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, metahistory.org. And you can also jump on my site and click on the upcoming shows. There's a little tab, uh, we call it ingeniously, Event Horizon. Uh, but anyway, John Lash is currently presiding over the Event Horizon. And if you want to find out uh, all about John and the work that he does... You can get there from my site or directly at www.metahistory.org. Okay? It's going to be a great program. And John is also involved with uh, my new project with Joanna Harcourt-Smith called Future Primitive. And by the way, that website is up as well. So uh, check it out on the web, www.futureprimitive, F-U-T-U-R-E, Primitive, P-R-I-M-I-T-I-V-E, futureprimitive.org. And that's a project that I'm working on with Joanna Harcourt-Smith, and it's ongoing and sort of developing. But the website's up, and John Lash is involved with that as well. So anyway, really looking forward to having John on the program next week. It'll be interesting and enlightening for sure. The following week, April 3rd, uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna and Stephen Herod Buner. I had the pleasure of speaking with both of them on Saturday, just this last Saturday. Uh, we did an interview in the morning on the 18th, and uh, 
I'll air that interview on the 3rd of April. And it's fascinating. And they're both remarkable men. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. You're going to love it. So Dr. Dennis McKenna and the remarkable Stephen Herod Buner on April 3rd. The following week, the 10th of April, Dr. Michael Heisen, my wonderful friend and amazing, just another amazing researcher and uh, scientist, neurobiologist and Ph.D. marine biologist who runs the Sirius Institute in Hawaii on the Puna Coast. We'll find out what's up in Michael's world in just a few weeks, okay? The following week after that, on the 17th of April, James Kent. Richard Glenn Bohr, Dennis McKenna, again, coming up. Maybe on the 24th of April, maybe not. That'll probably probably be a live program uh, sometime in May, if not at the end of April. But, that'll, again, another wonderful uh, opportunity to uh, uh, to hear words of wisdom from those guys, all right? So lots of interesting stuff coming up. We've got a great, uh, a great program tonight as well with Michael Tsarion. So we'll take a break and uh, come on back with some other stuff, all right? But right now, let's hear a piece of music from Leek, Henrik Palmgren. Wonderful music, international independent music from Sweden. This song is called Clean. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to it, Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, that's Henrique Palmgren, the artist who goes by the name of Leek. So, this is Mike Hagen, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's do space weather here. All right, today is the first day of spring in the northern hemisphere. We call that the vernal equinox. That's good news for people who like to look at the sky. Uh, if you look at statistics, the equinoxes, both in March and in September, are some of the best times during the year to see aurora borealis. And uh, interestingly enough, the Earth recently, right on the 18th, got hit with a pretty strong solar wind, which has sparked a magnetic storm, a geomagnetic storm, and has, uh, has produced aurora. As far south as Minnesota, Wisconsin, not quite this far down here in uh, Missouri, although it's possible. Uh, but anyway, been pretty wonderful over the last couple of nights in the north. And uh, there's been some wonderful imagery taken as well. And some of that can be viewed at www.spaceweather.com. In fact, there's one guy there who took some photos and said, uh, this is solar minimum. As a goof, sort of, you know, he jokes uh, because uh, he says that the uh, auroras were floating above the horizon in Wisconsin last night, and uh, that's not something typical of solar minimum. So anyway, wonderful stuff happening, and uh, the sun, nothing uh, too significant, but did kick up some uh, significant solar winds over the last few days. So that storm has sort of subsided, but the Earth is still inside that solar wind stream, and uh, over the next couple of days, you'll still have a great chance for aurora borealis viewing up in the northern hemispheres, okay? All right, the moon waning right now, and will be pretty much invisible by next Sunday, but full again in about three weeks, two and a half weeks from now, okay? All right, according to folklore, uh, as I mentioned, uh, today is the vernal equinox and the first day of spring. But there's this, uh, I just want to clarify something here, a little bit of information for you that you may not have known. There's an old uh, wives' tale, I guess, is a great name for it. But the idea is that the first day of spring, the vernal equinox, is the only day of the year that an egg will balance on its end. Well, this is not true. Uh, every year there are science fans that are pulling their hair out uh, when uh, some media story comes out about the dubious physics of seasonal egg balancing. And uh, the truth of the matter is that an egg can be balanced any day during the year if you uh, have some patience. And there have been all kinds of uh, interesting uh, ideas that have come up that say that the Earth and the Sun are somehow aligned gravitationally or this or that or whatever. But the simple fact is now that an egg can be balanced on its end anytime you like. Uh, just need some patience. But I'm sure there are certain days of the year where it's easier. Now, that's not the, not the question. But certainly there are days when things are more in balance. And that's what the equinox is about. Uh, the equinox is about balance. Uh, the idea that there is exactly 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark, 
As a matter of fact, I guess a more accurate statement would be that there are 12 hours in between sunrise and sunset. Certainly there is light uh, at varying degrees in between those uh, those time periods. But anyway, it's a wonderful day. <clears throat> and I don't talk politics or war or that sort of stuff very often, but it is the three-year anniversary of the instigation of the war in Iraq. And I was very encouraged that there was no additional aggression today against any other nation. And I actually think that it's significant because these days <clears throat> of the year, such as the equinox, in particular the vernal equinox because it's the beginning of spring and it's a celebration of life and the death culture and the destroyers of life are very fond of taking days like this and making a mockery of them and, and presenting things that just affront their nature. And so it was nice to see a relatively peaceful day, uh, even though I'm certain that there was violence uh, in Iraq and violence in many other places around the world. Uh, it was nice to see that a new campaign has not yet begun. And let's hope that it doesn't happen. All right, so... Uh, what else is happening? <clears throat> As I said, the vernal equinox. It actually happened today at 1826 hours Greenwich Mean Time. That means, uh, let's see, there's six hours ahead of us. That means noon, plus or minus here. About 12.30 p.m. this afternoon was the actual uh, equinox moment. Of course, it only happens for uh, really no time. It's like John and I were talking about last week. There are really no such things as these alignments. They just have a period of uh, time where you move toward it, then, a, then, then an absolute moment where it peaks and then it fades away on the other side of it. But at any rate, at 1826 Universal Time, that's about 1226 p.m. this afternoon here in Columbia, we had the vernal equinox. <clears throat> so happy day, all right? Uh, this is actually uh, also International Earth Day. It's not Earth Day in the States. I think it's April 20th, maybe. But anyway, International Earth Day today. So for people celebrating that, here's to you. Uh, there is a Brazilian workshop on astrobiology that began today in Rio de Janeiro. And I find these interesting conferences and workshops on astrobiology. Of course, this means life outside of our planet. And there's much interest and talk and discussion and uh, investigation. Who knows what's really happening actually. Uh, let's see what else. On the 21st, tomorrow Cassini, uh, this probe that has been flying around uh, Saturn and the moons of Saturn for quite some time now will be making a flyby of the moon of Saturn called Rhea, R-H-E-A and we'll have to see if anything interesting results from that. As we know uh, there was um, Enceladus another moon of Saturn that was discovered just a week and a half ago to have water on it. So interesting things coming even from our little neck of the woods here in our little solar system. And my big rant and rave lately is to to talk about data samples and uh, sample size, this sort of thing. And I love to, I love to make jokes about it because uh, regardless of what we think we know on this planet, our data sample and our sample size is so small uh, relative to the vastness of the universe that it's just uh, 
you know, preposterous to make assumptions past, you know, the tip of our nose, really. But anyway, uh, interesting things happening right here in our own neck of the woods, in uh, uh, the moons of the big gaseous planets, Jupiter and Saturn, uh, seeming to uh, have quite a bit of things up their sleeve. And we're learning more about them all the time. All right, so what else? Comet Shoemaker-Levy 3 will make its closest approach to Earth on the 24th. Shoemaker-Levy 9, of course, was the comet that smashed into Jupiter 12 years ago in 1994 and uh, shocked the scientific community and proved that uh, the universe and the solar system is still a very violent place. Uh, prior to Shoemaker-Levy 9, there were many scientists that argued that the era or the epoch in which planets were hammered by asteroids and comets and meteors was a was an epoch that was long gone and that uh, the scars and craters that show up on all of the planets and moons in our solar system were things of bygone eras and that were not happening in the present while shoemaker levy 9 made it obviously apparent that this was an incorrect assumption and that the solar system is more like a pinball game than it is uh, a plant <laughs> and the reason I say that is because plants don't move and they're sort of on my mind lately because I spoke with Dr. Dennis McKenna and Stephen Buhner a couple days ago and when you talk to two guys like that it's hard to not think about plants for a while uh, but anyway, plants have their own way of uh, getting around. And so do objects in the solar system. And every once in a while, they smack into things. And it was uh, made apparent by Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 12 years ago when 21 fragments of that comet smashed into the planet Jupiter. And quite frankly, Jupiter has never been the same, uh, or, or has not been the same since, I should say. And uh, Ken Stedman and I uh, had an extensive uh, period of time where we, where, where we watched what was happening on Jupiter after uh, the impact of those, uh, those cometary fragments. And uh, the planet Jupiter really underwent some amazing changes and still, uh, still does to this day. All right, what else? Uh, the 10th anniversary of another comet, 1996 comet Hayukutaki, uh, flew by Earth. Uh, and got relatively cr uh, relatively close, about 9 million miles, back in 1996. And it is also the 45th anniversary, on the 25th of March, of Sput uh, Sputnik 10. Sputnik 10, of course, a Soviet-Russian probe, and this one carried a dog named Zvdotchka. And uh, the Russians love to send dogs up. We, we, we preferred monkeys, apparently something more like ourselves. Anyway, on March 26th, uh, daylight savings also kicks in. So set your clocks in six days. You'll have to uh, move your clock ahead one hour. Okay? What else? Stars. All right. Throughout uh, this month, if you look in the northeast, many of you are familiar with a constellation known as the Big Dipper. 
So if you look at the Big Dipper, you'll find it in the northeast. And uh, if you imagine down at the bottom of the Big Dipper, uh, at the bowl, if there was a hole maybe at the bottom and it was leaking, then whatever was inside the Dipper would leak out and pour onto the back of Leo, the constellation Leo now set up pretty much underneath the Big Dipper. And uh, basically Leo's heart, the heart of a lion, there's a big bright star there called Regulus. You can see that every night this month, okay? All right, now if you take the uh, the Big Dipper and the two pointer stars, now these are the two stars that are at the front of the bowl, those two that are right at the front of the bowl, uh, they will point out to Polaris, the North Star, which is always in the north. And you can also use the Big Dipper to locate a, uh, a much brighter but less well-known star called Arcturus. If you follow the curve of the handle of the dipper. So you sort of follow the arc to Arcturus. There's a wonderful book that's called The Voyage to Arcturus that I might suggest that you might check out as well. Okay, let's uh, take another break here. It is about 11.39 on the 20th of March. And this is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's hear another song here from Leek, Henrique Palmgren, independent international music tonight from Sweden. This song is called A Storm Will Come. We'll be back in just a few minutes, and I'll have my guest Michael Terrion joining us in just about 20 minutes at the top of the hour. We'll be talking about the Irish origins of civilization, and it's a happy post-St. Patrick's Day to all of you, and a happy vernal equinox. So we'll be back in just a few minutes.
right, Enrique Palmgren, that's Leak. That song is called The Storm Will Come. And this is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It is 11.45 on uh, the Vernal Equinox, the 20th of March, 2006. And let's talk a little bit about a couple stories that are in the news, and then we'll get things going right at the top of the hour with my guest, Michael Tsarion. Returning uh, and welcome back to the program. He appeared back on the 12th of December, and uh, really pleased to have Michael back on the program to talk about lots more uh, of uh, the things that he has diligently been working on for many, many years now uh, over the next uh, couple hours. So we're going to talk tonight a lot about uh, the country of Ireland and more about the historical mystical, mythological roots of that part of the world. Uh, but anyway, the Irish roots of civilization is the general idea of what we'll be talking about in just a little while. So stick around for that, okay? All right, here's a couple stories uh, that are worth talking about. Check this out. Uh, this is from uh, the English version of Pravda, Russian newspaper. And uh, it's about dolphins. Check this out. Dolphins have long become an inspiration for numerous authors of most kooky theories. One of the latest theories was put forth by Simon Clark, an astronomer at the Kennedy Space Center. He maintains that dolphins are indigenous to one or more of the moons of Jupiter. Next to humans, dolphins could be the most intelligent creatures in the solar system. So forget the little green men, said Clark at a press conference in Florida this January. NASA's Galileo noticed a movement under a thick ice layer of Europa, the Jovian moon, while flying past at an altitude of 400 kilometers several years ago. The probe's sound sensors reportedly detected a whistle coming right out of the ice cover. Until recently, NASA has kept all data pertaining to the Galileo interstellar mission under wraps. The details of the findings are still coming through. Scientists were just amazed at the results of a computer analysis of the data. The frequency of the sounds coming from the moon's ocean was found to be equal to that of the sound produced by dolphins on Earth. The error margin is .001%, said Clark. Now, I was pretty skeptical when I read this article initially, so I sent it to Dr. Heisen, Dr. Michael Heisen, who is, you know, uh, a straight uh, marine biologist and neurobiologist, but uh, a guy whose life's work has been with communication studies with dolphins so he was fascinated first of all and I also checked out this guy Clark um, this guy Simon Clark and he is actually a, um, a scientist for NASA and he does uh, all kinds of uh, press conferences and uh, um, he's involved in astrobiology this term that we uh, we used a few minutes ago so he's a legitimate guy and uh, what the hell is going on on the moons of Jupiter? I mean, who knows? Very interesting, though. You know, there are traditions on this planet that say that, uh, that, say that ancestors of our race were water creatures. The nomos uh, is one that comes to mind, this word. And I bet you Michael has something to say about this, too. Hopefully he's listening right now and can make a note or something. But uh, anyway... Here's another water-related story, and another story related to cetacea. 
Uh, British Columbia, the First Nations, to honor an orca said to embody late chief spirit. This is from Vancouver, uh, from Canada.com. Uh, the Canada First Nations will hold a memorial service today, this was on the 13th, for Luna, the killer whale, who was killed last week by a tugboat's propellers. The service will be held on the waters of Nootka Sound, which became the orca's adopted home. Natives who believe Luna embodies the spirit of their late chief Ambrose Makina will hold a goodbye for everyone who knew him. Federal Fisheries Officer Ed Thornbird said yesterday, the Mawakt Mukalak Band is holding a passing ceremony into the next world. Mr. Thorburn said, Luna spent the past five years off Gold Creek, located on the west coast of Vancouver Island, after wandering away from his pod off Washington State. Members of the Mowak Mushalat First Nation believe Luna was the reincarnation of Chief Makina, who had predicted he would return as a killer whale. Shortly after the chief passed away, Luna appeared. Now, all of these stories uh, are much more extensive than what I'm reading. I'm just sort of reading clips from them. But you can go read the entire article if you'd like. Just hop on the web, go over to my website at MikeHagan.com, click on the News tab, and then uh, you'll see them all there. You just, and then there'll be a, a link at the top of the story there, and you can go to the original article and find uh, the source from whence it came. All right, what else do I have to talk to you about here? Here's one. Astronomers report unprecedented double helix nebula near center of the Milky Way. Now, this one actually got some mainstream press. It was actually up on the AOL front page, I think, uh, earlier in the week. But it's worth talking about. Astronomers report an unprecedented elongated double helix nebula near the center of our galaxy. Using observations from NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope, the part of the nebula that astronomers observe stretches 80 light years in length. The research is published in the March 16th uh, issue of the journal Nature. We see two intertwining strands wrapped around each other as in a DNA molecule, said Mark Morris, a UCLA professor of physics and astronomy and lead author. Nobody has ever seen anything like that before in the cosmic realm. Most nebulae are either spiral galaxies full of stars or formless amorphous conglomerations of dust and gas, space weather. What we see indicates a high degree of order. The double helix nebula is approximately 300 light years from the enormous black hole at the center of the Milky Way. The Earth is about 26,000 years uh, light years from the black hole at the galactic center. Another interesting story, huh? As above, so below, huh? And also, all of these stories, um, uh, as most of the stories that come out of the science community, they're filled with their assumptions, so I'll point out a couple of them like I always do. Uh, the black hole at the center of the galaxy. There are legitimate scientific arguments and theories that say that there's no such thing and that black holes don't exist as such. Uh, Dr. Paul Laviolette, one of those guys, who makes an amazing ar argument against black hole theory in his amazing book, Beyond the Big Bang, and uh, uh, subquantum kinetics as well. And let's see, in the one I read before, this guy, Dr. Uh, Simon Clark, who says, next to humans, dolphins could be the most intelligent creatures in our solar system. So forget little green men. Well, that's a pretty arrogant statement, too. Next to humans. I think that dolphins and orcas are smarter than humans. 
And I think that there's a way to prove it. I think that, you know, it bears out scientifically. We certainly know that their neocortex is bigger. And that says a whole lot. We certainly know that their, uh, uh, their linguistic capability is higher and greater than ours. And language is the most amazing thing that we do. Spoken words, spoken language. I mean, if you're looking for the thumbprint of God on our species... It's spoken language. It's an absolute miracle. The fact that I can make little mouth noises and you can somehow, in your own physical body system, convert those mouth noises that have themselves been converted to little sound waves that move across acoustical space and then enter into the holes on the side of your head and then somehow are processed by a dictionary that's inside your head and if your dictionary matches my dictionary, you can read my thoughts. It's a miracle. Well, dolphins and whales can do this to a tremendously advanced degree. So, anyway, uh, interesting stuff. All right, one last story here, and then we'll get to the heart of the matter tonight. Michael Tarion. And if you want to get a leg up, hop on the web right now. Go over to MikeHagan.com, and uh, right there on the front page, you'll see a link to Michael Sarion's website, and it is www.teroscopes.com. Teroscopes All right? All right, one last thing here. In the, uh, uh, the spirit of St. Patrick's Day and in the spirit of the program tonight, here's an interesting little fun story. Uh, there is an Irish website that is called irelandseye.com, and I'll read a little bit about it to you. Thanks to the Irish website irelandseye.com, millions can go leprechaun spotting on St. Patrick's Day from their couches. You can do it any other day as well. Uh, irelandseye.com has a webcam installed in an Irish field that connects to a robust server in anticipation of a rush of visitors uh, to glimpse the mythical creature. <clears throat> The Leprechaun Watch has worldwide appeal year-round. However, the traffic jumps up a lot during uh, the actual holiday itself. Um, what they do is uh, they have a web camera, and it is connected to the Internet, and it overlooks a fairy ring in Tipperary County in Ireland. And this is another thing that we'll ask Michael about. The fairy ring is an amazing uh, mythical Thing. And it has to do with a mushroom, too, and I want to talk to him about that. So, anyway, uh, the area is reputed to be a haunt for leprechauns, shiris, pukas, and other Irish fairies. The fairy ring, a prehistoric earthwork circle, is in the glen of Coolgallen, in the townland of Ballysoonrath, near the town of Thurles. The tree around the perimeter is a chestnut, and uh, there's, a, there's a giant oak tree there as well. Thought to be over 600 years old, the fairy ring has a magical reputation. Saved from the axe in Tudor times by a skeekshi, or a tree spirit, it now hosts a camera in its cavity in its trunk, and a branch supports the antenna. A dolmen, a group of six large standing stones, topped by a capstone, commands the middle of the ring. Mr. Murphy commented, What better place to see a leprechaun than in an enchanted garden, an enchanted glen, beside a fairy ring containing sacred stones and a magical tree. Ha, how cool. All right, let's take a quick break here. We'll play a quick song, and we'll come back with my guest, Michael Cherion, and 
talk about the Irish origins of civilization, along with a lot of other things. And I think it will be more uh, revealing than you might guess if you haven't heard Michael talk before. So stick around for that. It's coming up in just a few minutes. In the meantime, another song here from my friend Enrique Palmgren. This is Leek. The song is called All Backwards. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. Michael Terrion in just a couple minutes.
listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. in Ireland. My guest tonight, Michael Tsarion, is an expert on the occult histories of Ireland and America. He has made some of the deepest researches into the comparative mythologies of this whole planet and into his own country's ancient and mysterious Celtic tradition, uh, a Celtic tradition that tonight we'll be talking about. His presentations on Atlantis and Lemuria and the antediluvian or pre-diluvian epoch have been acclaimed by veterans in the field of paranormal research. He comes in the tradition of Comans and Beaumont, or Comans Beaumont, I should say, Ignatius Donnelly, the wonderful Emmanuel Velikovsky, William Bramley, Lawrence Gardner, Eric Von Doniken, many others. Uh, he's been on the program before. We were lucky to have him in December on the 12th, and we talked about his book, Atlantis, Alien intervention and genetic uh, genetic manipulation, and we're going to speak again right now to my guest. Welcome back to the program, Michael Tsarion. Thanks a lot, Michael, for being back on uh, Radio Orbit. Mike, thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, how are things going? Very well, thank you very much. A lot of busyness, you know. I'm trying to get uh, my Origins and Oracle series completely concluded. Uh, they've been uh, long awaited by you know uh, people who are into my work and. Uh, Glad to say that I think there's about a week left, and we'll have them, you know, available for people. This has been a, at least a two-year effort, you know, just uh, to do the finalizing of it. Actually, uh, though it's taken a lifetime to get the material together, just the actual filming and the, you know the studio aspects of it, and then the DVD production has been a solid two-year you know effort. So a tremendous amount of uh, work. A lot of people looking forward to this series. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. First of all, let me give out the website. Uh, www.terascopes, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S, terascopes.com. And uh, the DVD series is, what is it, six DVDs, I think. Yeah, it's six sets, so they're not single sets, they're six sets. Oh, I, I was mistaken, I thought it was just six, six individuals. No, there are six, the, the, the pro, it's like a, there's a, it's a theme program called Origins and Oracles, and it, it, there's nine in all. There's going to be about nine uh, DVD sets in all, but six have been completed, and three are to come in the next couple of years. It's a, it's an ongoing you know project that I'm putting together. It's produced and presented by myself because I didn't uh, want to have my material edited anymore for content or time. Hmm. Not that the people who were doing that were you know were malignant in any way. I had great you know assistance from people who did video me in the past, who did uh, make little videotapes and VHS, you know, of me and different interviews throughout the world. And I was always very thankful to that. But because these individuals were affiliated with television stations or uh, radio stations, you see, the whole idea is that they had to edit it, you know, for time and content, especially if you're doing a speech live, say, at a conference. Again, even if you're doing a gala weekend, you know, really that boils down to just, you know, a very short canvassing of some very, very important 
subjects and I would always have people come up to me afterwards and go you know my god we know there's more in this I wish we could hear more but then how many videos you know can you send the people through the mail I mean it's just ridiculous the video the VHS medium is just not really for the kind of you know, work that I do that people in the new age movement are doing or in the in the conspiracy movement you know we are constantly edited for time and for content and it really was very uh, frustrating because there's so much to this information. I particularly myself like to have beginnings, middles, and ends. I know that people are very new to this information. Uh, some of it might come to them, you know, in a, in a, as a shock. So you, we need to honor that, and we need to really make sure that we have beginning, middles, and ends, and right, right. the context for people, because otherwise we're just preaching to the choir for two hours. Right. right. You know, and that's fine and dandy, and that's great. But may, wait a minute, there's 80 percent of the people out there don't even have the faintest idea about anything regarding you know, the ancient world or secret societies, you see, or subversive use of sacred symbolism hmm. or any of the, or, or, or any of these, uh, you know, healing arts and things like that. So we have to really take that on board and make sure that we do a very, uh, we, that we're very reverent towards these subjects because they're sacred and they will not be reduced to sound bites, you know, on CBS and CNN. And, and these channels are not going to get up on their hind legs and come out to, you know, give us all these millions to do everything. It's just not going to happen. Right, right, right. You know, so what we have to do then, now we're in the digital age, so I really pondered on this, you know, Mike. I really thought about it and said, you know, if, okay, if I'm going to do, redo these VHSs and videos, you know, what would I really like to see? And I've always been a big fan of Joseph Campbell. Mm, me too. You know, those great shows. I mean, you know, you'd sometimes just watch TV just to catch those shows, but and he did many, of course. He did his famous stand-up ones where he just was in... In the college mm -hmm. at Princeton, and just you know, or was it uh, St. Mary's? I think. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, uh, and then he did the ones you know where they were a little bit more elaborate, and then he did the interviews with Bill Moyers. But I've always liked his style. It's just a single man, you know, there with you know explaining and intriguing people with his stories and with yeah, his knowledge and, and telling wonderful stories. Such a wonderful tele uh, storyteller, you know. Right, and and you know, it doesn't take a lot of money, and it was it, it was. Uh, Done in a, in a sort of an amateur way, but yet, yet you see, I'm a great believer that even though you may be doing something in a low budget way, it does not need to be rubbish. It doesn't need to look horrible. I agree. You know, it can still look good and it can captivate and intrigue people. And again, most of all, you're getting the, the, the content out there. You're really giving person, you're saving those people who may be coming to this for the first time because it's the, those people I really had on my mind when I did this. There's information there for advanced people, but there's also you know a lot of information there which will intrigue beginners because when they come to look at this they want it put in context they want it simple and they don't read it anymore i mean it's a, it's sad but true i mean we can sit here and lament it for you know until the cows come home right. but the fact of the matter is people and i can understand it a lot of them don't have the time right. uh you know reading has never been a big fascination for americans you know less than 10 percent of the people of america have a library card and less and i think it's in fact i think it's even less than five percent of the library card and less than 10 percent read something like that and we have to look at that and go oh, okay well let's work with that then we're in the digital age now and you know what we don't have to have our information edited anymore for time or for content put a little money into it and go for broke and if you've got a message then then sketch it out in that mm. way and, and people can sit back in their kitchen while they're cooking right. or you know kick back uh, with their palm recorder on a, era on a flight or wherever they happen to be or in the car and, and, and listen to it audially and watch it visually 
and, and get the information that way as opposed to sitting static and trying to read a book, you know, for hours and hours and hours. Mm. Well, I'll tell you, Michael, that's, a, that's a, a really interesting observation that you make because I've actually had a, a recent experience literally over the last couple of weeks where I've, where I've been mm -hmm. uh, communicating with a friend that I've been out of touch with for a long time. And uh, I've been trying to uh, uh, introduce uh, her to a lot of these concepts and to, uh, but you know, it's a lot of stuff that has to be assimilated in, in, at this period of time, in a short period of time, you know, and, and she made exactly that comment. It's like, I would love to, to go to all these links. I would love to read these books that you suggest. I would love to listen to the radio programs that you do. I would love it. I would love it. I just, I have three children. I'm, I'm, I don't have the time, you know, and so, uh, solutions for this, uh, are certainly required. And she's not the only one. We have a busy world because we have, you know, uh, requirements, we have, uh, we have responsibilities, but we also have, you know, the new technical uh, digital kingdom that we're in, so we use it. And that's what I thought. I was very attracted to it because it, I, I really did want to emulate the Joseph Campbell type of style because I think that works. It's been universally successful. And I also wanted to have it in a medium in which you could get some of these very detailed things into a format where it wasn't just going to be, you know, text. For instance, let's give an example. Michael Moore's book, that um, one was it, Angry White Man or something yeah, like that? Yeah, Stupid White Man or something stupid like that. Stupid White Man. Right. That, you know, this is a man who has unlimited budgets. This is a man who's already been over the media for the last five years, a very, very high profile. This is a fellow who's done at least four, you know, very, very recognized movies. Highly watched by mm -hmm. even the mainstream, yeah, and yet his yeah. book, and yet his book, did not even reach the million people mark. It barely scraped a million readers, and that's in a country of 300 million. Hmm. So now, if it had been the Michael Moore DVD or the Michael Moore movie, well, wow, then you're up into the you know many millions of people. So right there is one man's example. We see that we have to sort of meet people halfway. They're not going to read. You know, a lot of what they read is garbage anyway. You said earlier on that it's it, it's so cliched in a way, and it's almost uh, what did you say that it's sort of redundant almost as soon as you do it. Yeah, yeah, it's obsolete. You know. Yeah, you know. So we that was what I was looking at, and also I realized that I didn't have just one of the usual bogus one-hour television. You know, it's in sound bites, uh, bullshit type of you know content right. that I could throw out there, which you know a lot of people have uh, who do DVDs. And then we see them constantly on television where at the end they leave you with more questions than you had, uh, you know, leave you more <laughs> questions than answers. Right. I'm tired of that rubbish. <laughs> so I definitely did not want to emulate that. I wanted to make sure that we cut right through that and say, look, I'm going to make something where you're getting the answers. There's no more questions here. Once you mm. finish reading, you know, or watching these, you're going to have uh, answers. So we're going to try and compress a lot of stuff and give you a lot of tools so that when you are watching this garbage on television, which of course is all you've got really, you know, uh, for most people, well, now you're going to be able to handle that because you're going to know the facts behind this this jive and that a lot of it is not true and not accurate, and you will be empowered with the tools to, you know, know better, basically, and know something, you know, much deeper. Yeah, that's what's interesting about some of this stuff, and we'll get into it certainly later, but, you know, uh, symbology, uh, one of the things in particular that has always struck me is something that's you know the whole hide in plain sight idea but yeah. the symbolism is used everywhere but if you're not aware of it uh, and it's historical reference and all of these occult uh, uh, connections 
And by occult, I don't really necessarily mean bad. I just mean hidden and secret, right. you know. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, they're everywhere. And you see, it's, it's amazing. You see them everywhere. So uh, anyway, we'll talk more about that. But uh, uh, let's get back to the DVDs and, and the program re really quickly. Oh, yeah. And, and we'll, we'll make sure we give people the information ho on how that stuff is available, all right? Well, now also, uh, there, my main site, as you said, is taroscopes.com. But if they're interested specifically in the DVD set, and they have their own website, which is the name of the series. It's Origins and Oracles, all one word, Origins and, A-N-D, Oracles, O-R-A-C-L-E-S. Go to originsandoracles.com, and you'll be able to browse things there. Don't expect to buy anything yet, because we're still putting the concluding uh, parts to it. The DVDs are actually finished. We're just working on some other odds and ends right now. So, you know, we were heading, we were actually doing this because we wanted to time it with the, you know, the, the season that we're in, the vernal equinox. We are, important. yeah. Yeah, very important to me as a symbol that, uh, you know, you launch things in Aries. I mean, mm -hmm. what's the point of teaching people astrology if I don't use it myself, right? I mean, <laughs> so, you know, we've been very, very much uh, working with that calendar so that we, you know, we have the right energy and the right chi, the right, uh, you know, the right energy all the way through. Right, right. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a quick left turn and ask you a question with some, about, about this, uh, uh, this idea of the equinox. Yeah. Um, earlier in the program, I think it was before I called you, I made a uh, I made a mental note. I like to make mental notes of you know when significant events happen. And you know, March 20th, three years ago, was the was the day that they began the uh, invasion of Iraq. Correct. And I, uh, in my own uh, you know worldview, I believed. And still believe that that was done with perfect knowledge of oh, yeah. uh, of the sky and the stars, and, and that this was. But uh, and uh, what do you think of that? I mean, to me, it was like an. Uh, I look at the vernal equinox as uh, uh, a celebration of life, the renewal of life, and to me, this was sort of like an affront to that. Oh, unquestionably, and you're absolutely right to, to say that. In fact, these things are planned. You see. Just like it is if anybody goes on tour to England or to Cologne or Paris or London, you know, and even, of course, New York, you will see that um, these beautiful buildings, these incredible structures that are, we call them the government buildings. I mean, we just say that without thinking, you know, but it's not the government shed or at the back of the garden, or, you know, or it's not the government bunker. It's these incredible, you know, unbelievably majestic buildings that, right. of course, again, as you said, hidden in plain view. Mm -hmm. Don't really think about it because there they are, and we just don't see it. My God, don't see it. Look at London. Look at the way the buildings are, are, are placed. Look at the iconography on the buildings. Look at the mm -hmm. placement geomantically of these buildings. Point is that these government officials empower themselves by putting the buildings and their, uh, their edifices uh, on geomant geomantically powerful zones, which mm -hmm. empowers them and disempowers everybody else. If they're willing to do that, and this has been proven by people at the top of the academic totem pole who know this. In fact, you don't have to go to them. You just go to the original founders of these cities. You go to the president's memoirs, and you go to these, uh, the Library of Congress, and they're happy to tell you themselves that it was with meticulous planning. So there's no debate about it whatsoever that the cities and the government buildings are geomantically mm -hmm. placed specifically, okay? Mm -hmm. All right, now, your point was this. If they're willing to do that, and they're going to that much length, don't you think they also use the astrological calendar, which has been used for thousands of years, to empower themselves? And they know exactly what signs of the zodiac mean. Hmm. They even encode those symbolisms into various speeches that they give, like the gore, when gore and bush were running, 
during that year where the, you know, the controversy was, and Gore was thought to have won. Well, in Gore's, uh, several of the speeches that he had for his presidency, he had encoded astrological leitmotifs, or he had somebody do it. Other people have done it. Hmm. Very, very specific. Then we have uh, inaugurations. We've got openings of this and closings of that. We've got declarations of war. It's not, as you say, uh, as you know, it's, it's perfectly not a uh, chance right. that March 17th, which, by the way, is the Jewish Feast of Purim. And mm. anybody wants to get on the internet, go into Wikipedia or one of the online dictionaries and put in Purim, P-U-R-I-M, the Feast of Purim, which is an ancient Semitic pagan celebration which is known to all Jews what that is all about. And it's about the destruction of Babylon and the destruction of enemies and how come this Semitic symbolism was then being used. Um, I'm not saying there's anything negative in the symbolism. I'm just saying the symbolism is being used this calendar time, just like Christmas and just like Samhan mm -hmm. and Sawain and these different Celtic right. festivals, right. the eclipses of the moon, like you're talking about, the cardinal points. So here we have a very famous ancient uh, festival, the Feast of Purim, exactly to the day is when the troops marched in. Hmm. In the previous time, and back in 2001, it was in it was in Sagittarius. In this era, it was very coming up to uh, where we are now. It was coming up to Aries, so far signs. In fact, when the first bombings were done in 2001, it was in the sign of Aries. The saber rattling happened in November, where the war was declared, and then in, it was in Aries, though, that the planes actually flew and dropped bombs. Right. So I have carefully, you know, looked at all of this, and have documents on it where they use the fire signs because the fire signs are partly about belligerence and masculinity and conquest. They will use the earth signs to do a lot of material things, just like the trimesters open in all the earth signs. How come it is that all the famous uh, business uh, trimesters are all just happen to correspond with the, with the astrological earth signs? You know, then water signs are often used for public events. Air signs are used for communicative events, like mm -hmm. your... Um, your inauguration right. is always in uh, Aquarius, which is to pronounce to the people. And they are even so specific, they wait until the moon is right. there because yeah. the moon rules publicity and so on. So, you know, Nixon is renowned for having done most of his uh, very famous uh, declarations to people always when the moon was in a good aspect to an air sign. So, you know, there's, this has been proven. The patterns are there. And my whole point, my lifelong labor is trying to tell people, look, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for you. Find mm -hmm. out about your numerology. Find out about your astro astrology and use it. It's sitting there gathering dust. You need to use it because these power mongers use it for their empowerment. Right, right, right. Very interesting, Michael. All right, well, look. Okay, so it sounds like the uh, the series Origins and Oracles is going to be fascinating and uh, certainly enlightening for for many people. So check it out, everybody. Uh, it's Michael's work. And he's been, uh, it's his life's work, as a matter of fact, and, and, and now sort of coming to uh, uh, fruition here in this, and I'm sure it's ongoing, like you say, but certainly this is the beginning of it, and it's a six uh, set yeah. uh, uh, of DVDs, so there, so there are six different sets, which means, I don't know how many, but I'm certainly... There's about uh, 22 DVDs in all. Wow, so, so a tremendous 65, amount of information. About 65 hours altogether. My gosh, Michael. And that's just, again, that's the tip of the iceberg to what I'm really doing. It's one of many projects. But, again, it was very useful to um, get into the digital medium. I was very happy doing it. I had a good team working on it. There's been tremendous interest in it. And I've done it very patiently and methodically because I don't do anything, you know, in a, in a um, shoddy way mm. in the sense of the information and working, getting the right team to work with, you know. It was very important to me who I also work with was involved 
with the with the information as opposed to just some guy you hire off the street, <laughs> you know, uh, sort of rolling cameras. You know, I mean, that that wasn't that. Maybe we made sure the vibe vibe was very good, hmm. and so that it would work as well as you could do. Because there's a lot of also you know adversarial energy out there that kind of prevents people like myself from doing the work that I'm doing, or at least tries to. So again, it's very important to you know see the destiny of it, treat these subjects as sacred, wait for the right types of astrological timing to get them all out, and just hope that people have the patience to wait and understand this. Because as a teacher, I have to be aware of that. I can't be telling people do X, Y, Z if I'm you know flunking it on my own. Hmm. Oh. That's just not the way it works. Yeah, well said. Well, you obviously put a tremendous amount of work in it, and there's uh, 65 hours of of, uh, of information is a lot. I don't, yeah. You know, and and it's you're right. It's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure. I mean, these things you can go on and on. You know. And we tried to make sure that it was not going on and on, that there was not there was minimum of digressions, you know. Right. It stayed very on the ball. Oh, and I, and I don't I don't mean in in, no, in no, that. No. I mean there's so much out there that needs to be discussed. Right. I uh, understand that. You know. Yeah. And, but see, it can't be done in these usual uh, mm. one hour. You know, you're cramming everything into 60 minutes, mm. and it's just anecdotal, and it's just a whole bunch of questions with question marks. You know. Right. You know, people want answers. We're in the 21st century, right. and I've been waiting. You know, what shall I do? Shall I write a book? What are we going to do? You know, because I've got a lot of books coming out, and I think, and hold on, hold on, let's hold on the book thing for a while. You know, uh, the Atlantis book worked well, and it was good to do that in that format. But wait a minute, what about the rest of the stuff? You know, I've got stuff that I'm doing on children. I've got stuff I'm doing on psychic vampirism. Hmm. I've got stuff I'm doing on symbolism. How on earth are you going to have every symbol, you know, corporate symbol that I've been collecting stuck in a book? Hmm. You know, it's, it's just not the way to do it. Right. But you can show them on television. Right. You can put the pic pictures up there and everyone recognizes it. That's the way to go about it. So. Yeah, and you know, and the digital medium <clears throat> is also the one that is proliferating like crazy. I mean, you know, uh, certainly you want to sell your work and you have to make a living and I recognize that uh, but whether you like it or not your stuff ends up on the web you know and uh, it's it's much more difficult to do that with a book quite frankly than it is with a digital medium I mean now you know bang somebody can grab images they can grab a clip they can grab whatever out of a DVD and it's up on the web before you know it. And, and whether that makes you happy or not, I'm not sure, but it, it's a fact of the matter, you know. Well, you know, it's kind of inevitable. And, uh, you know, um, as long as people have, obey the normal legal copyright, right. you know, we, right. have, we have that fully covered, then, you know, it's okay to take a snippet here and there. I mean, my work is a, a lot of compilations of other people's work, you know, so, and I have a, a tremendous respecter of the Internet in the beginning because uh, we have had so many exposures of falsity and mm, uh, shenanigans true. because of the internet existed, whereas before the mainstream media would not cover, you know, X, Y, Z, and therefore major, major crimes that happen in this world and major injustices used to constantly get, you know, would not reach the public eye. Now you see the victim can form their website. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. do we have we we have an incredible amount of um, thanks to give to the internet because it allows people to have a public billboard where they can go to, where there is email, and there's a way to expose all kinds of things that have happened to people. I think that it's absolutely marvelous, you know. I mean, uh, you have television shows where they're saying, hey, you know, would you send us information about, you know, the, our program if you if you can? And in the old days, people used to have to send, you know, reams of, you know, hmm. letters illegibly written, and the poor producers couldn't even read it, you know. And if it was a police program, the police would have to siphon through all of this, you know, all of this print, 
not even read or make sense of it. Now you just fire people emails. You know, you can email your congressman. You can right. you can email all around the world. I get emails every day, hundreds of them from all around the world, from Croatia, from China and Japan and hmm. Australia. You know, yeah. So it's absolutely magnificent that way. And what does it do? It communicates what's happening in our zone. Hey, here's what's happening. You know, where I live. You know, Noam Chomsky, he couldn't do his work without it. The poor guy had to have literally physical pieces of newspaper and newsprint sent to him, you know, by his contacts all over the world. Right. So that then he could sit there and handwrite it into, you know, <laughs> his, his, his books. Now, with the Internet, these press people that he has all over the world, sending him information, just fired on an email, and he can, you know, cut and paste it. it, it you know, it makes his job a lot easier. It makes mine. So it's, it's a tremendous medium. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, it, it really has leveled the playing field. And, yeah. it, and, and it's introduced a completely new set of political realities that, 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 uh, uh, that, that those dinosaurs had no idea what they were getting into when they financed the whole thing. <laughs> and, and exactly. And, no, yeah, they didn't. It's because, again, you know, it's like when you squeeze something, what happens? You squeeze what you want, but then out pops, mm -hmm. you're squeezing plasticine, right? Yeah. You squeeze something, but a big blob of it that you didn't expect gets, you know, squeezed out. Mm. So as they're squeezing television and they're squeezing radio, the Internet dropped out. That's right. And, and if they try to squeeze it, then another form will drop out. You see, there's a beautiful action in the world that is ruled by the divine force and the spirit of rebellion that says, yeah, come on, squeeze us over here. Don't worry. Rebellion will always find its way out, you know. Uh, if we didn't have, uh, you know, I mean, look at this last conflict. No matter what side you come out on the war, you know, I'm against it, but your listeners may have different opinions. But just let's look at it neutrally for a moment. Before... There wasn't a chance in hell that you would have known what any other news, you know, uh, station in the world, unless you were, of course, a journalist or was very into the journalist networks. You could never have known what another newspaper was saying or what any other government was talking about. Now, every newspaper of every city in America and also from almost every country in the world, mm. it has their online interface. That's right. You know, I'm sitting in America and I can read, you know, the Belfast Telegraph, the old newspaper I used to read back in Ireland, you know? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I can get online and find out what's happening in my street, what's happening in Belfast. Fantastic, you know? Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, what would I do? Have my poor brother, you know, be f heading down to the you know, post office every couple of days to send me the latest, you know, he'd be going bloody mad, you know, he goes, <laughs> get this action, mate. No way, you know? Right. I'm not sending a bloody thing again. <laughs> You know, or having some poor news, you know, local news store, right. uh, news agent, you know, ordering it for me and yeah. hating me for. But you know, now I can get on the web and check that out, and then look at the stuff about the. the oh, you, know, you know, you know, Michael, you can save it, you can archive it, you can. I mean, you can manage it in your own computer. I mean, it's amazing. You're you right. Can add to it. It, it, if you, you read can, a newspaper article, yeah. you re read something you don't like it, you can edit it and go, hey, you throw back some information and go, it's look, amazing. you've got something missing here. You know, yeah, your stuff on whales and dolphins. You know, um, I've got. Uh, stuff I've been downloading on my website about that and you were talking earlier about dolphins it yeah. turns out that yeah. I, the whales for instance a single killer whale this is a killer whale specifically yeah the orca they found out that a single conversation between two killer whales contains over 15 million mm. pieces of information yeah. while the average conversation between in the bible uh, contains four pieces of information <laughs> yeah this guy uh, uh, Dr. Heisen Dr. Michael Heisen he's a guy who's been on my program a few times and he's a friend of mine he's uh, a brilliant uh the marine biologist and neurobiologist who, who's been doing work with these creatures for 30 years, and he is saying exactly what you're saying that their 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 ability 
uh, for language is absolutely astonishing. It's, uh, His name is Michael Heisen? Heisen, H-Y-S-O-N. Yeah, he'll be on the program oh. in, two, in two weeks, as a matter of fact. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, he's know? great. He's, he's, he's great and a really, really neat, heartfelt guy as well. So. Right, that's good. If, you, hear, if yeah. you're familiar with John Lilly, Dr. John Lilly, yeah. uh, M- Michael was, was one of... Uh, one of John's students, he, uh, John Lilly, was was Michael's mentor. Well, absolutely fascinating that is. Yeah, fa- fascinating. You'd you'd be really interested. So, hey, look, uh, good opportunity to take a break. Okay. Okay, let's do it. All right, let's do it. We will uh, come back. My guest is uh, the wonderful Michael Tsarion, and uh, information about Michael can be found at www.terascopes. T A R O C. I can't spell tonight. I've done like that three times. It must be this equinox. I'm supposed to be balanced, but I'm not. So anyway, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S, Terascopes.com. And you can also find out information about his uh, video, wonderful DVD series that's coming out, Origins and Oracles, O-R-I-G-I-N-S, and the word O-R-A-C-L-E-S.com. All right, OriginsandOracles.com and Terascopes.com. We'll be back with Michael in just a few minutes. In the meantime, we will hear another song from Leek. This song is called Orchestrated Landscapes. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit.
orchestrated landscapes leak independent international music on Radio Orbit. All right, this is Mike Hagan. My guest is Michael Tsarion. Information about Michael and his work can be found at www.terrascopes, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S dot com. We'll get right back to him right now. All right, Michael, so look, uh, I've been billing this program as uh, the Irish origins of civilization, and it's uh, a few days after St. Patrick's Day. It's the equinox, both important days in Celtic tradition. So let's uh, get on with it. What do you think? Absolutely. Um, can we also... I just found something very interesting about where the, the place we are now, astrologically. Yeah. Check this out. Uh, if people can get a pad and a pen, quickly get it and write this down. It's really amazing. All right, go ahead. I'm writing, too. March 19th, you know, it's March 17th, 19th, up to the equinox. Right. Especially, again, in context of the 2001 invasion of Iraq. Uh, a, f a friend who contributes to my work, another researcher, Rick Richard Fields, he, 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 uh, it's from his dossier. He says, in ancient times, astronomer, astrologer, priests taught that each month, month had an appropriate gemstone associated with it and of course we know that the gem which happened to be associated with the month of March is bloodstone <laughs> right so check that out now the 19th also fell on last time on a Wednesday and that was during the um, invasion mm -hmm. that comes from the Scandinavian day for you know Odin or Woden Woden's day right yeah, the god of, Woden's day, yeah. yeah the god of war right 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 Amazing. now the Woden though is the same thing as Mercury from the Latin so, and anyone who knows the symbolism of the god Mercury and Quicksilver is very deeply involved with all government machinations. In fact, it's considered the Mercuralia. Mercury is the patron saint of the Illuminati, the, the, planet, uh, the planet and the symbol of Mercury. Mm. Now, it turns out that, that at that time, the planet Mercury was conjuncting with the sun at 6.18 in the morning, the Baghdad time when the bomb started to drop. Mm. So, and 6.18 is 6.18 which is the Fibonacci number. Hmm. Interesting, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And then this year, it fell, huh. the year that he's writing, it fell on a Thursday, and our Thursday is from the Scandinavian Jupiter, or Thor. Yeah, Thor's day, yeah. Thor's day is Thursday, but guess what? In German, Thor is known as Thunder yeah, Day. Another day God of, of War, yeah, yeah. The God of War. Really There's interesting. Incredible uh, astromantic symbolism always must be taken into account when we're, we're, we're studying these things. Hey, for uh, for the listeners, explain really qu quickly what it means when you say something is in conjunction with something else. Uh, uh, within a few degrees of each other, so really close. When you're standing beside somebody, you're in conjunction with that other person if you're within a few feet. Well, the planets, you know, to the naked eye and to the telescope, if they're within three or four degrees, and I think, you know, everyone has a different idea. I think it's within, if you're within ten degrees of something, it's, you're near conjunction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it could be anything between one and ten degrees, you're in conjunction with the other planet. Okay, good. All right. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so certainly uh, intention behind all these yeah, things. Yeah, sure. And that can be proven. That's what we do. I have a lot of it on my Weapons of Mass Deception DVD that's coming out. People want to get hold of that. They're going to see, you know, ample uh, synchronicities. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, and all of the stuff, of course, is connected to what we're going to begin to talk about now. All of this stuff goes way, way back, and and uh, we're going to begin to delve into some of these old mystical traditions uh, uh, that were around thousands of years ago in the land that's now called Ireland. Right. This is one of the great cover-ups. You know, 
my work is essentially involved in exposure. You know, I refer to myself as an alternative historian. And people, mm -hmm. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. I mean? What it basically means is that you can't trust the history that you've been told. Mm -hmm. You know, Rousseau spoke about that. Voltaire has done so. Many historians have said that they're, you know, it's bogus, that the thing has been so tweaked by those who control the institutes of learning. And I'm a big believer that in the age that we're in, as we close the age of Pisces and, and move into the age of Aquarius, that many, many conspiracies, many, many hidden secrets are going to be, you know, made manifest to the ordinary people of the world. Things that were completely, you know, closed to them, mm. things that they would have been burned at the stake had they even questioned in the past. All that, all that hidden knowledge, all those hidden mysteries, That why do we use the word mystery? All these mysteries, there's going to be changes. There's going to be changes in the constellational alignments. There's going to be changes in the energy of the earth. There's changes in the consciousness of human beings. The sum result of it is that all sorts of mysteries and secrets are going to be taken out from the shadows. The shadows are going to be mm. passing away, you know, fading out. There's a new kind of light is coming into the world. Not the light that we're familiar with, but the light of truth, and the light of understanding, which is very connected with what I talk about as the spirit of rebellion. Mm. And the spirit of rebellion is very akin to the spirit of understanding and higher knowledge. Yeah. We're going to be awakened to something. And we have to understand that history is one of those big conundrums. Well, gosh, you, you know, uh, uh, you remind me of something that uh, I was told a long time ago by someone who was real special to me. His name was Grandfather Wallace Black Elk, and he was a Lakota oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, elder. And he lived in Colorado in Denver, and, and I was lucky enough to do Sweat Lodge with him and spent a lot of time awesome. with him. I was lucky. And he taught me many things, and he said one time... He said, Michael, there are two things. There, are the, there is the past and there is history. He said, the difference between the past and history is the past cannot change. Right. <laughs> In other words, history does change, and it changes based on who's writing it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we, as human beings, we, we want to learn. We go to school. We, we have an interest to find out what's being told to us, so we're not at fault. The fact is that we give our trust. We give our trust, and then we believe that what we're being taught is true. Mm. Trust and faith are very easily manipulated in human beings. They're well. good. They are virtues. But the trouble is that people who are, who are controlling us and the, controlling the world have a vast interest in abusing our trust and our faith. So yeah, we have faith. We know all about it. We have that. We have that phenomenon. We can. We can. We can see it in action, and we have trust. When we, you know, it's like the old psychologists say. Uh, when they're talking about relationships, hey, you know, if you're with somebody who um, is, uh, if, if if you're sending out love and trust to a partner, which I assume people in relationships do, it's an automatic human trait to believe that you're also receiving it in return. Hmm. Let me repeat that. It's very important. In relationships, if we, as we do, send out love and trust to other people, we illogically and irrationally assume that we're also receiving it. Even when we're not. We may not, in fact, be receiving it, but we auto-condition ourselves to believe that we're also getting it back. Interesting. The psychologists say that this is the doom. It's a bane of, re of relationships. It's also a bane of our relationships with the institutes of learning, with God, with all sorts, all the way up to fractal. We give our trust. We give our faith to learn because we're hungry for knowledge. We're hungry for truth. We don't understand that people are completely duping us, and, and history is not told to us are right. You know, basically the way to look at it is this. There are three areas uh, that we have to look out for. There's three, let's call them taboo or controversial areas of life. First of all, 
which uh, I'm sure Graham Hancock and, and so many other people, Michael Cremo and others could definitely confirm, and I certainly know it, is that we are told to ignore Earth's prehistory. You know, we're told that, look, it begins seven, eleven thousand years ago, and that's, that's it. Forget yeah. about everything else. Right. And that's oh. where, that's where, that's where it begins to get interesting. Right. And we're told there's nothing before that right. except a bunch of ice ages, which of course now, through the work of so many great scholars, has been proven to be a total joke. But these, these royal academies and royal societies, they've, ins they've literally physically, you know, inserted ginormous ice ages that didn't even exist between us and the previous ages so that we will never look back to prehistory. Then number two, there is, you never question religion. That's it. Doesn't even get any more complicated than that. <laughs> Do not, if it, we're saying it from dogma, you don't question it. You know? And the third one is, is the one that I have specifically addressed myself to. I've, I've addressed myself to all of these three, but it's this one that is the most important to me and opens the door to the Irish origins of civilization question. And it is that we are told never to question that civilization spread from east to west. Mm, yeah. We're always told that, that, all, that if, if there is a thing, a phenomena called civilization and culture, then you better believe it, that it migrated, it came, it walked from the east to the west. And that we just simply uh, say, fine, accepted. Now, wait a minute. I'm an Atlantean scholar. And I think to myself, well, okay, I got a problem. Well, for, I got two problems. First of all, all Trinity University people, and I have no love for those guys, I'll tell you that, <laughs> even they have proven from their own researches on the f in the field that Ireland was con uh, always colonized from the West. Well, I say to the people, how can that be when the West, all that was out there, according to them, is the Atlantic Ocean, right. and you'd think that sailors aren't stupid, they're, they're tired and hungry, and there's nothing stopping them from you know colonizing from the East or from at least the South. Hmm. Well, we're told that they colonized Ireland from the West, Okay, I got a problem with that right away. Number two, as an Atlantean scholar and a person who totally believes Atlantis was in the Atlantic Ocean out there, I know for sure that when Atlantis was destroyed and when Lemuria was destroyed, many survivors and, and uh, surviving peoples must have come to Europe uh, and to Britain from the West. I mean, it's, it's a simple logic. So then I keep on hearing, you know, from my earliest days, this stuff coming from the schools and coming from the official books that no, it happened from east to west and we, everyone accepts that. And yet, and yet, in all sorts of history channel programs and all the books that you will read and all the stuff that you will hear about history, they cannot explain thousands and thousands of mysteries that, that come with this east to west movement. Well, perhaps one of the reasons why you have so many labyrinthine questions and outstanding anecdotes about history that seem to be a complete puzzle, like the city of Petra, and who were the Minoans, you see, and who were the Mycenaeans, yeah. and who was the Etruscans, and I mean, the list goes on. I don't even want to get started with that. Right. And how did the school of Pythagoras rise, and mm. did the Egyptians influence the, you know, the Greeks, and all these questions that nobody has an answer for, and where's the original Egyptian language, and who built the pyramid? You know, the endless line of questions. Well, hold on a minute. You're getting these problems because you planted the wrong seed. You get the wrong fruit if you plant the wrong seed. If you believe that civilization moved from the east to the west, then you inherit problems. And you, you, you inherit questions where there shouldn't be questions. If you turn the thing around and shine the light differently, the whole object looks different. Why not entertain the idea for a moment that civilization may have moved from the west to the east? And let's also entertain the, the idea at the same moment as we're thinking that as to why have we not been told this? Could it be that the powers that be want us to do anything but look to the Atlantean coast 
because they don't want us to know about Atlantis, so they have concocted the whole lie to make us continually be looking to these desert wastelands in the Middle East, which had no gold, no silver, no water, no civilizations have been found there, none whatsoever, no buildings, no Temple of Solomon, nothing has been discovered there outside of Egypt, but all the wastes of Asia Minor, all the plains of Shinar, all the Babylonian wastelands where nothing could survive. It was so pestilential and burned that even animals, the hardiest animals, couldn't live in the places that they're telling us that, that civilization arose. These are facts. Hmm. And we're meant to look there because there's a vested interest in having us look there and not look to the West. Now, this is where my work starts because it's following on from the tradition of a very, very great scholar by the name of Connor McDarry. Hmm. Connor McDarry lived in America, but he was Irish, and also a lady called Anna Wilkes. These people's books are very hard to find. They're in the same category as Emmanuel Velikovsky, as Commons Beaumont. These scholars, their work is very, very difficult to find, and it's basically been left, you know, to rot. Right. We've had Barry Fell, and more recently, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, again, unknown figure, who worked more recently. All of his work was scandalized. He was a great American scholar. Um, we have, uh, back in the turn of the century, Augustus Leplongeon, who was the first man to understand what was happening in South America, who wrote some incredible work. Yeah, I've actually read some of his. Yeah. It's amazing. Queen Mu and the Egyptian Sphinx. Mm. He was showing the connections between South America and, uh, and, uh, and Egypt. Well, I do the same thing. I'm in the running tradition of these people, but my focus is on Ireland because I, I live there because I've always been interested in the occult history of that country. I found out things that are absolutely incredible about the Arthurian tradition that have never been brought to light about the Druids, the Celts. And again, we have got a lot of disinformation to, you know, uh, to put a right because we have a pack of lies coming down from Vatican City, from London, from the kings and queens of the world, from all the dynasties that have ruled, from the Roman times especially, to make absolutely sure that we don't know about the Druids. And if we do hear about them, that mostly what we're hearing is lies. Hmm. And this is a most important shamanic tradition wow. crushed underfoot. And we now have to resurrect this on top of the idea to realize that civilization did not come from east to west. That's not to say, Mike, that there was not migrations from east to west. There were migrations sure, from east to west. Sure. In fact, there was many migrations in exactly the way that we are being told that there were migrations. But these migrations took place a lot later, thousands of years later. So when history is pointing at, oh, look, no, we can prove it. These migrations happened here. Here's the proof. I'm going, sure, there is the proof. I'm not, I'm not, you know, doubting that. But I'm saying that these peoples that you're talking about did not bring civilization with them from the east through the countries of the west. It was brought to them in ages past from the west, and now they're merely traveling homeward again right, right, in later right. times because that's the that's the penchant of people who have now got fed up living, you know, where there's nothing happening, and are trying to find their old ancient homelands, or at least are going back to the homelands that spawned the great knowledge that they have benefited from. Mm -hmm. So this movement from west to east is absolutely essential to understand who are the men of the west, what was their message, and how many thousands of years ago that they disseminated civilization to all corners of the globe, as far away as India, Japan, China, and certainly Egypt and the Middle East. All right. Well, look, we've got we've got another. Uh, we can take another five, seven minutes and talk. Uh, get a little bit more into it before we have to take a break. So, so that's so. Where do we start? We start. Uh, uh, how many thousand years ago do we start? Uh, with We're talking about after the fall of Atlantis. After the fall of Atlantis, which I believe was about thirteen thousand five hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I talk about how the uh, Atlanteans, who I would consider more the negative power. 
they did indeed set up homelands in the Middle East. And that's a, these are the um, Sumerians mm-hmm. and the Babylonian tradition. And some of the, the empires of blood uh, did arise in the areas that we know to be the Middle East. But these were uh, primitive, bloodthirsty you know, people that ruled uh, very tyr- tyr- tyrannically and whose agenda was the old Atlantean agenda that I refer to in the book Atlantis. Mm-hmm. What, I'm now t- what I had to leave in that book, I couldn't get in. In that book, it wasn't the place or the time to say, okay, how did, when Atlantis fell, you know, how did it pick up? How, where did the, the great minds of Lemuria and Atlantis end up? Mm-hmm. The ancient legends, again, this is nothing of my own concoction here. This is, you know, in the reference works when people know how to, to refer to those. Ireland which used to be called Albion in the ancient days, the British Isles, Britain. And when I say Britain, I mean B-R-I-T-O-N, Britons, as a, form, as a part of the Celtic peoples. And uh, hopefully later we can get into what these words Celt mean, mm. so that we're, again, you know, making sense of, our, of what we're saying here so that people are not confused. But in Ireland, the ancient legends say that the great Celtic Magi, the Druids of old, who arrived on Ireland... Uh, about 10,000 years ago and who built the oldest monuments in the world I don't know if your listeners know this but the Pyramid of Giza is not the oldest monument of that style or that kind or that sophistication in the world the oldest monument of that kind of sophistication is in Ireland Hmm. it's just one anecdote it exists in Ireland it was built in ancient times by a group of Druidic Magi and these Magi in their own words say that they came from four great continents or islands that were destroyed in a massive cataclysm where there was fighting between the forces of good and darkness. All the stuff I talk about in the Atlantis book is affirmed in their own words, saying that they came from these places where there was tremendous misuse of knowledge and uh, weaponry, and just like it says in the Mahabhatra hmm. and the Indian Vedas. Right. And these individuals then came to Ireland, is where they set up the next colleges. So Ireland became where the purest remnants, where the Druids of the highest order uh, settled and partly in uh, Wales and Scotland and, and England, as we know. And it's from there that these migrations then start to take place because the Druids were not, the Celtic people were not, located only in the British Isles. The Druids were a worldwide college. That's another piece of things that people don't understand. The School of Pythagoras is a direct a creation, a wing, a tentacle of the Druidic teachings and is, was formed by a Druid. The Druid's name was Abaris. In fact, the word rabbi that we get from the Hebrew rabbi is a Celtic word from abarai, which means the great teacher. And these great teachers went all over the world in exactly the same way as Christians later on. If anyone has watched the movie The Name of the Rose, they'll know what I'm talking about. Right, right. The Christians will accept the fact that wandering monks of their own Christian background traveled out from England, traveled out from Ireland, traveled out from the, uh, you know, the island of Iona, and from the Hebrides, and, and traveled all throughout the world to Italy, to visit the Pope and to Avignon in France. This is all accepted in the days of Christianity. Well, listen, vast migrations of Celtic Druidic people took place in exactly the same way. But you see, <laughs> the difference mm-hmm. is that this was, wasn't, these guys weren't some old God-peddling lie merchants, you know, whipping themselves and, and trying to control the minds of the human race. The Druids were the great enlighteners of the world that the pharaohs got down on their knees to, that the Brahmins are directly descended from that the Ainu people of China, who don't look Chinese, by the way, mm, they, <laughs> yeah, the Tocharian people, the, 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 um, the, uh, there's so many different peoples. The, the, it's possible that the, um, the Samaritans and the Scythians and the Sumerians and various different groups, certainly the Etruscans, the Mycenaeans, 
the Minoans, for instance, the Philippi- oh, even gosh. the Philippines. You know, Michael, I've been very interested in, in Minoan Crete uh, re- recently and uh, just fascinated by what apparently looks like, you know, a partnership culture there. It is exactly that. You put it, your nail on the head. You see, Syria is a word that means the men of the West. The word, the word root gives it away. I love words because words show you what is going on. That's right. And the plain the of Shinar, yeah, the plain of Shinar, meant the plain of the ones who traveled from the west who brought the sun cult. Shinar comes from old Celtic words. Did you know that all the twelve tribes of Israel, the names for the twelve tribes of Israel, the names for all the uh, stars, the twelve in ancient Hebrew, the, the stars were worshipped and the zodiac was worshipped, and they had twelve. The Hebrew names for the 12 signs of the Zodiac are Celtic names. They're Gaelic. Is that right? Well, in, in the Hebrew, it, there is in Hebrew, they will tell you in the Bible, it is always written that there was a primordial language, that once upon a time all languages were one, yes, right? Yes, yes. Uh, that there was no many languages, there was always only one parent languages, and yet the same people who say this in the same book do not say that that language was Hebrew. Now, wait a minute. That is a very interesting piece of information. The same text that tells you that there was one language and only one language goes on to not tell you that it was Hebrew. Now, I think that's a startling omission, because if it wasn't Hebrew, what was it? Then we discover that the, one of the oldest and most ancient languages of the world, of course, Sanskrit, scholars now discover that Sanskrit and Gaelic are practically twin. They're so close to one another. Really? But they cannot decide that they cannot decide between the two which one was the parent language, and they hesitate to say that it was Sanskrit. Now, if if Western scholars hesitate to say that the parent language was Sanskrit, then that tells me everything. Fascinating. They Absolutely, Michael. Fascinating. Hey, hold on a second. Let's take sure. a break here. We're right about the top of the hour. Uh, we will come back in just a few minutes. All right. Amazing, Michael. And hey, I want to ask you. Um, uh, uh, and make a note, if you, if you would, when when we come back, because we're just uh, talking about monuments a, a minute ago, and I have uh, a close friend of mine and a listener who uh, sent a note to ask you a question about the Boyne Valley. Yeah, he says, sure. "What the hell is going on in the Boyne Valley uh, in in County Douth?" And he's very interested in the cairns and mounds. Uh, no problem. Yeah, I'm, I've so. really researched that back to front, and they can recommend him some interesting information on that. Perfect. We'll come back in a few minutes. We'll talk about that and many more things with my guest. His name is Michael Tsarion. Information about Michael, his books, uh, and uh, DVDs can be found at the following. Uh, website addresses. The first one, www.terrascopes, T-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-S dot com. And uh, video uh, DVD collections and sets can be found, uh, not quite available yet, but uh, just a couple weeks down the road here, at www.originsandoracles.com. All right, we'll be back in just a minute with Michael. In the meantime, some more music from my good friend Henrique Palmgren, Leak. On Radio Orbit, this song is called Force Majeure. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Michael Tsarion. This is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan. We'll be back in just a few.
right, that's Leak, my friend Enrique Palmgren, Force Majeure. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, my guest is Michael Tsarion. And as I mentioned earlier, his information and material can be found at www.terrascopes.com. And let's get right back to Michael. We're talking about the Irish origins of civilization and uh, already some interesting things coming up, Michael. Absolutely. You know, again, people have to recognize by omission. It's not so much what historians say, it's what they leave what out. what they leave out. You mm. have to be looking at that as well. If people are writing the Bible and then the same people are telling you that Hebrew is not the parent language, you should have a question mark up it going, why would these people leave that out? <laughs> because they knew fine well that it wasn't, you know, the parent language. We're looking at Gaelic. Gaelic is related to the Japanese Ainu language. The Ainu people are very important in the con- colonization of America. Yes, yes. You know, so, yeah, another people that, that Joseph Campbell talked about exactly. quite, quite a lot. Yeah. So we have, I mean, it's a long story. You know, people can get onto my website and go to the Astral Theology pages. And mm-hmm. if you click on the second page, I hope that people will read both or all of the pages of Astral Theology section. But if they're specifically interested in this concept of the Irish origins of civilization, then they need to go to the Terrascope's website Click on through to the Astro Theology pages and go to page number two, and that's where all of the information that we're talking about tonight, they can find that. It's going to be on a DVD forthcoming, but, you know, right now there's a lot of incredible information regarding the origins of Christianity and the Irish origins of civilization there. Yep, I'm sitting there right now looking at it, and it begins with uh, Astro Theology and the Bible. Right. And, uh, and that might be something that we want to talk about, Michael, because, of course, these are related. So, uh, well, they are. So let's... Um, Let's do that. Oh, well, uh, maybe you could address my, my question really quickly about, uh, about the Boyne Valley, and, uh, and well, we, we can deal with that. It's a huge subject, but remember the, remember the monument I was talking about that predates the pyramid? Yes. of enormous sophistication. Yes. This is what your friend is talking about. Uh-huh. Boyne Valley is the host to a particular set of megalithic sites, which are rare and unique in the world. Your own Arthur C. Clarke and many other scholars from all around the world have gone there and just been aghast. They don't even have a, con- they don't even have a you know, a theory because it's so unbelievable and uh, people I've worked with in Ireland are saying that even before those sites were created there was even pyramidical structures there this thing was absolutely incredible huh. before it was re- recently renovated so this is something to go and see it is based on uh, Celtic uh, design the thing is that the Celtic people were matriarchal uh, very strongly and matriarchal um, which meant that, you know, on the lowest level, the women had very high levels of authority within the Druidic order, and within the Celtic order. But on the greater level, it meant that they had reverence towards the earth itself. They, they thought of, of deity, and they thought of divinity as essentially feminine. And they, their, their magi were mostly male, but the male, just like it was in Egypt, was always considered an ambassador or an agent for the feminine principle. Now that's a little metaphysical and, you know, we don't have time to go into it, but mm-hmm. I've got information on my website about that. Now, the structures and monuments on the Boyne Valley are circular in fashion. They're mound-like. They were designed to look like the womb. They were designed to look like the breast of the female. The river Boyne is a Gaelic term that comes from Boan, who is the cow goddess. The river was always considered the goddess. Um, the river Boyne it makes an exactly the same figure, makes it, so it makes exactly the same shape as a part of the Milky Way does. Hmm. There's, a, there's a part of the Milky Way that makes exactly the same turns and curves as the layout of the river. It's exactly the same thing as Graham Hancock has found 
in Agora in Indonesia, right, right. As, as, as he and other people, and Robert Boval have discovered mm-hmm. in the Giza Plateau. You see, so this phenomenon has been used a lot. But in Ireland, we have a river there, so there's a tremendous amount of sacred geometry involved in that place. Now, if your friend is really interested in that concept, then he needs to read a book that I recommend. It's on my website. It's called Ireland, Land of the Pharaohs. It's written by a colleague of mine in Ireland who is a, has been a Rosicrucian, who's definitely an insider, who has tremendous information. The book is called uh, Ireland, Land of the Pharaohs, and it is um, by Andrew Power. Now, his website, and you can click through to it by going to my links page. Okay. You go to the Tyroscope's website, and if you go to the links page, then from the links page, you will, you will see that there is another page called Affiliates Products page. Now, this is a page that I have dedicated to all the people that, whose work that I think is absolutely essential for my, you know, people to get into. So there's not too many there because I don't recommend a lot of stuff, but the ones I do recommend, you know, people need to know about. So if they click through to the Affiliates Products page, from the Tarascopes links page, you will see the first book there is Andrew Powers. And also there's two interviews there. There's two little icons where you can actually hear him interviewed in Ireland. So you can get a primer of what he's doing. And there's a blurb there about the book. This is the most fascinating book that goes not only into what happened at the Boyne, but also that the kings of the Ireland were highly instructed in ancient Celtic uh, symbolism and ritual. Because everyone in Ireland who knows about the Boyne does not know it from what we've just been talking about, Mike. They know about it because of a great battle that was fought there between King William of the House of Hanover mm. and the James Stuart of the Stuart dynasty. They're, they're concluding battle. The battle that sealed the fate of Ireland and sealed the fate of England and the world happened at that river. Huh. Just a, yes, and there was no accident. It was geometrically and astromantically planned that it should happen near to this Celtic ruin, these Celtic stones. And it was also planned to happen on certain days, namely the 12th of July, when the sun would be in conjunction to powerful constellational alignments, etc., etc., etc. My friend Andrew Power has discovered that this mystery is still kept alive by the Freemasons of Ireland and the Orange Lodge. So this is a book that is just burning. It's on fire, you know. All right. I highly recommend it. Ireland, Land of the Pharaohs. Yeah. Yeah. All right. By Andrew Power. Okay. Yeah, it's over a 30 years' work. <laughs> I huh. knew this guy back in 1980. Amazing. He has nonstop worked on uncovering something remarkable in this world, I'll tell you. All right, well, wonderful. I'm glad we brought it up. So, so yeah, the Boyne Valley, amazing. You know, and and uh, I actually have seen, uh, I've looked at, at at a map or a layout from above uh, of of that uh, that particular area, and it is remarkable. Isn't it? Oh my God! The whole thing is incredible. People go there to Ireland; they never bother visiting that place. It's like the center of the universe. It's like it's where it all happened. Well, yeah, and it and it actually seems to to uh, to have. Um, to be laid out in star patterns as well. It is. Yeah. They based a lot on the constellations. They built things in, in circles like that, the stone circles. They incorporated the number 12. And uh, these were obviously used, just like Stonehenge has been used, for astrological alignment. But that's not the only reason they were used. They were used for astrological, astro, um, uh, what am I thinking, astronomical alignments to you know, map the heavens and all of that. Right. There, were, there, was a, there was a dual purpose. Just in the same way that I said that the Druids were fascinated by matriarchy, they understood the Earth was alive. Mm-hmm. You know, the Gaia theory, but ex- excuse me, it's the Gaia theory sure, of 10,000 years ago that sure. they knew. It's not a modern invention. But anyway, what they used to do is build these stone circles and temples, precincts, and, and the famous rafts. Uh, you, you know, you were talking earlier about the uh, mounds and the trees mm. and the, how they have the circles, you know, which yes. are considered the fairy circles today. Right, the fairy rings. Yeah. yeah, all these rings were designed on purpose, not 
they had a dual function. Some of them were to map the heavens, but what people need to realize is that the other function, and you need to realize this because if you go there, you will need to realize it, <laughs> is that these were, were precincts which were to protect sacred energy of the earth. Mm. So basically clumping in there with your big DM boots isn't probably the best idea if you really want to be a purist because the whole idea of those stone circles was to say, hey guys, you know, like you put a fence today? Right. Yeah. This, this was is a, a sacred space. Yeah. Mm. Sacred space. Known to geomancers and known to people of Feng Shui, but maybe not known to the rest of the world. Now, the, the modern uh, archie, the establishment, they use the same thing too. In our cities, when we see a certain plaza or a certain fountain or a certain arrangement of buildings, you see, they're all using it as well, especially mm. Washington, D.C. Right. So it's not something, it's ancient, but there's people who are using this today in the li in alignments of their cities. I'm just bringing it up because it's very important that when you go to these sacred sites, and, and, and you're going to meet these guided tour guys from Trinity University who are going to just tell you a bunch of rubbish, you know, which uh, don't even get me started on that, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you're listening to all that claptrap that they're, you know, the rigmarole they've been scripted to tell you, just know that these stone circles were used for astrological alignments very meticulously, so they were used for rituals, for cleansing and hygiene of the psyche, and they were also used to protect and cordon off sacred earth energy mm. that would protect Mother Earth and that would keep good energy flowing so that the chi of where these people were living was also kept very healthy because they knew if the earth's chi, the earth's energy, the earth grid ever got backed up or got toxic, then, you know, we'd be in big trouble. So mm -hmm. they tried to maintain that, you know, as they had done in ages past. Remarkable. Yeah. All right, let me ask you another question here. Um, we're talking about the fairy rings. Now, I also know that there, there's a, a the same name or the same... Uh, moniker is used for a phenomenon that happens every once in a while with mushrooms and mushrooms will grow in a circle like yeah. that and they call it a fairy ring yeah. um, you, me you mentioned earlier uh, that one of the things that we're looking at here is an ancient shamanic tradition yeah. and to me shamanism is oftentimes connected to the sacred mushroom and uh, I thought uh, maybe I would bring that up and see if you had a comment on it. Well, yeah, I mean, just like in the, mov the movie Altered States shows you, you know, that the psilocybin and the concoctions, we know that the Egyptians were into the monatomic substances, and we got to know this, that the Druids didn't eat meat, and the reason why they didn't eat meat is for many reasons, but one of them is because they were absolutely super horticulturists. Mm. So the answer is yes with a capital Y. It's not that these guys were sitting getting high on mushrooms all the time. That wasn't it. It's just that they knew the essence and the secret of all living things. Right. They, they had a complete and utter understanding of everything that lived. Where do you think we get all that? Has anybody ever questioned who gets into herbalism how we know the most detailed things about certain tinctures and certain herbs? Oh, yeah, it's fascinating. Like, well, where did this knowledge come from? Well, it came from the Druids and the people connected to them who learned from them. It got to, you see, in Tibet, it's all been forgotten now. People were always telling you Tibet was the secret sacred place where all this stuff was known about herbs. Right. Now there's only one old geezer left, and he says, I don't even know half of it. My master knew a lot more than I did. They have forgotten it because it wasn't theirs originally. Mm. They were taught it by other you know, visitors when the earth didn't look like the way it does now, when there was the ability to cross the oceans, but the, when there was ability to cross the land masses. Now, the Druids, who were expert horticulturists, they knew everything. They, they had you know, 13 sacred trees, there's, you know, we get the word leaf of a book from the old days of the Druids writing on leaves. Ah, leaves from a tree. They used right. to, yeah. I mean, it's, it's old, it's new, you know. Right. We write from right to left, from left, uh, excuse me, from left to right to mimic the movement of the sun across the sky in mm. the northern hemisphere because the Druids did that to honor that if you didn't have the sunlight, meaning light, 
you wouldn't be able to have any knowledge. So to commemorate the beauty, the fact that light, utter light is inner light, light is understanding, light is enlightenment, light is knowledge, we even wrote across the page from left to right. So, I mean, there's not a thing that they didn't do ritually. You know, the idea of putting candles on a birthday cake like you do with the Zodiac, uh, great games like snakes and ladders. The serpent is most found in Ireland than any other place in the world. It's one of the reasons why the Christians later denigrated the serpent is because the serpent of wisdom was the kindred insignia of the Druids. So when you see the serpent, and when you hear about St. Patrick saying, I've cast the serpents out of the land, he's not talking about physical snakes because there haven't been snakes in that land. It's a political jargon which refers to the serpents, the healers, the medics, mm. the incredibly enlightened beings who knew everything to do with your body, every you know, all the healing arts. Who, um, I mean, the, the Druids were so into herbs that the king of the... Um, of the physicians, and when I say physician, I mean the herbalist. Right. Um, his name was Danschacht. When 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 uh, son, his son and daughter, were the ones who uh, you know inherited his great secrets. And in the Celtic lore, they claim that the son of Danschacht was murdered. And some of the legends say the father, in a fit of anger, killed his own son. And in the, in, in, in the traditional poetic of the bards, they say that when the son was buried, when his sister took his body out to the land and buried him in the land, 365 herbs of healing grew from his body from the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the grass. Interesting. It that, sounds cured, it... that cured all ills, and she was the girl, Ermed, who used to go out and, and cull, cut those, harvest those off, off the body. Look how poetic they are. You know, this mm, is a, yeah. <laughs> one of the reasons why they're so little known about the Druids is because they had a penchant for for communicating in music and in lyrics and in melody and in poetry and not in written word. So one of the great legends, when you start talking about the Irish legends, you end up slipping into a lot of, you know, into a lot of poesy and a lot of uh, mythology. Mm. And uh, this was one of the ways that they communicated the absolute kindredness and rapport. For instance, the same thing is picked up in the idea of the musician. In order to be a harpist in Ireland, you had to not only be able to play the harp and play it to perfection, you had to know how to make one. Hmm. Meaning you had to plant the tree, you know, I mean, you literally had to go through the whole process, right. or you had to cultivate the wood, right. you had to be able to carve it to the right shape, you had to be able to string it, the whole nine yards, and every string on a harp, it was of the, the, seven, the seven strings of the ancient harp, was attuned to the Hertzian frequency of the planets. Huh. So the music that they played on had healing abilities. They had, and that's why in the old Celtic legends they talk about the lament and the song that would make you cry and the song that would make you merry and jump up and down and, and be happy and the song of healing. And the reason why they talk about these different kinds of tunes that would make you laugh and cry and weep and all of this is because they were literally generating the harmonics of different planetary archetypes. Hmm. So we're talking about something that even today, you know, with all the... Uh, Musicologists out there, they still haven't got the grips with this idea, but great scholars like Randy Masters and, and um, a few others know that in musicology, like uh, Jocelyn Godwin, have understood that the planets have a Hertzian frequency that the piano, the modern piano, mm. and the ancient harps are attuned to. And that's why with the retuning of these harps, they could, they could work on your emotions in the same way that the Indian ragas are in ancient times. You know, I mean, there's some, I mean, these people have had so much sophistication. They were completely erudite. They had their own working language. They had their own working uh, alphabet. They had an entire medical understanding and a full pharmacological knowledge. <laughs> and they used it for healing. They, they used it for shamanistic purposes. And they used it for healing, which I always interpret as hygiene. 
healing comes from the old word hygiene and uh, you know I go into a lot of that in my work about what exactly that really means mm. you know the whole concept of psychic hygiene fascinating man it's amazing amazing alright let me ask you uh, a question you were talking about St. Patrick briefly there yeah uh, some, uh, somewhere along the way and don't ask me where I heard it but there's something stuck in my mind uh, that has to do with the idea of purgatory and I, I, I think that I recall that the idea in the Christian tradition of purgatory was something that was n not always present in the Christian tra tradition, oh, no. but was introduced by St. Patrick to sort of incorporate an old Irish mythical yes. tradition. Yes. Maybe you could expand on that and yes. maybe and clarify if I'm wrong. And the Scandinavians picked up. No, you're right. The Scandinavians picked up on it also. There was heaven and there was hell, or let's just use those words. It wasn't quite like that. Right. Because remember, a lot, a lot of the things that we're told were Druidic. We're told by Roman scholars and later Druids who, who, who were living only in Italy. Right, right, Rome, right, right. And who now were what we call assimilated into the, into the uh, Western system. You see, what we have to understand is that just like today, when some third world country is completely colonized, do not the young, the, new, the young generation do not normally affiliate with the previous older generation. They start to morph into the, the colonial right. idiom, right? They, in other words, they, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They start to identify with the colonial. Right, as art. opposed to their own historical. Right. Uh -huh. Well, because well, first of all, they're sick and they're all wiped out. Yeah, yeah, all their roots are gone. Right. So in the ancient days, it was the same. So let's bear in mind that when we hear a lot about stuff that's from Druidism, it's from this assimilated Druidism, so it's not totally the real thing. But having said that, they, they did believe in several levels of the continuum, Spiritually, and they had a they had a mid region just in exactly the same way as the uh, story of Midgard in the Scandinavian mythologies, in a place where again the soul has to rest. They had a very Kabbalistic system, in fact, in which they said that the soul who is <clears throat> not how did they put it? They said there are some people who are not good enough to be saved, but not bad enough to be damned. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We're back, we're back to the poetry again. I love that. So this is their way. They go, you know, those guys, will, they'll hang out in the purgatory until, you know, until they're ready. You know? Right, right, right. Because, you know, they're, they're not quite good enough yet, you know. Mm. This is how it came down. But, yeah, ultimately, you know, the, even the earth was considered like that, that it was a midway point where souls would, you know, work it out. But, I mean, the very word druid, D-R-U, comes from that drew, and it meant a sorcerer or a wizard, but it originally comes from the word druthen. It's a bad druid is a bad pronunciation of a word druthin, D-R-U-T-H-I-N, uh -huh. that would have been familiar to people like Tolkien and the Anglo-Saxon scholars, you see. Right. And that word actually means the servant of truth. And we get our word truth from druth. Okay? One of the derivations... Huh, fascinating. Because there are others, but the, one of the der derivations of the Anglo-Saxon word truth is druthin. So a, a druid, you're when you say... The guy's a druid. You just meant he's a guy of the truth. He's a servant of the truth, and this was also understood by the uh, the, uh, the Latin scholars when they were trying to write the histories. Uh, but within their order, I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned this thing about the three because everything in the druidic tradition was in threes. Hmm. It was like they were just mad on triangles and, and three, you know, three deities. Uh, just like you have the Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, they right. have their three deities of Taran, Beli, and Esau. So the, you have the three there, and also they had the three grades. They had actually more than three grades, but the three main grades was the, the druid, the bards, who were the mostly the poets and the musicians, mm -hmm. and then what they had is the ovates. But the highest druid 
was actually known by the term Ola, O-L-A, or O-L-L-A. And that's where we get the word oligarchy. <laughs> so when you're hearing the word oligarchy being floating around, it's because the oligarchy literally means the highest of the highest, blah, blah, blah. But Ola is a Celtic word again. So now here's a thing I'm going to drop on you that's pretty amazing, and this will definitely cause a lot of controversy, but it's, it's not meant to cause controversy. It's meant to educate people. Okay. When we're talking about... Let's so have when, it, man. When reaction is that you know, people, they react, and we know the reasons why. Yeah. Now, the word Irish is not, was not originally spelt with an I, because it is not Irish. It is Irish, A-R-I-S-H. Yes. Now, ish, I-S-H, just means man. Okay? Uh-huh. So what did the A-R-I represent? That is where we get the word Aryan yeah, from. Yeah, where Aryan comes from, right. sure. Or Arya. Now, we stop because we know everybody's immediately thinking, okay, Nazis, white, white supremacists, <laughs> etc. No, no, we're talking about the real thing. We're not talking about some jive that's been spun to people, you know, since the 1930s. Right, this and is Nazis long have, before the shadow of Long before of Hitler. Any, of that, any of that stuff. Because yeah. let me just first say that the Nazis didn't have the faintest idea in the wide world what the word Aryan also meant. Okay, first of all, the Nazis were funded from New York and London, and they weren't German for Germany. So let's get that understood. Yeah. And secondly, the whole cult of the Aryan that they were spinning had a completely different uh, suggestion. It had to do with ethnicity and race. What we're talking about with the true word did not have anything to do with ethnicity and race. That was a cunning ploy to spin a bunch of uh, lies so that a particular result would be got, you know, would be arrived at. Now, we don't have time to go into what that result was and the whole Nazi thing, or at least my take on it. But let's go back and understand that the word Aryan is extremely ancient. And the word Arya, which is known to the Indians, the Indians have it in their language as well, and they talk about the uh, high Aryans, mm. that word simply meant, that's where you get the word aristocracy from. Mm. So Ari, stocracy. Ari is an Irish word. The original aristocracy were the Ola, the Ari from Ireland. And it simply means noble. Hmm. The word Arya meant the, the ones of the light, the ones of, who had the noble knowledge, the ones who had perfected themselves. It comes from the word Aryo, A-R-Y-O. And that is where the word Ira comes from today. So when people are saying Ireland and they spell the Southern Ireland, you know, the, the land of Southern Ireland is known to all Irish people, especially people from Dublin, as is called Ire. E-I-R-E. Hmm. Again, that's a misspelling. It's Gaelic, yes. But it's a corrupted form of Gaelic that comes from the word root Aryo, A-R-Y-O. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so the Ari, oh. or the aristocracy, are the Druids. It has nothing to do with a particular ethnic. It's to do with any man on earth. Any man. Okay. This is where the confusion came in. Wow. Now, you know, and the word Arya also uh, strikes me because it's, a, it's also a beautiful song. Arya. Look at that. Yeah. And yeah. who were the great composers of the ancient times? Hmm. Yeah, the bards. Yeah. Maybe even the word air, you know. So we, we, we have to look into this word. But A-R is a word that meant ar- agriculture. The word A-R, if you look it up at even in a dictionary, you don't even have to go... I think if you go to even the irregular dictionary, not, let alone an, uh, an etymological dictionary, the word A-R is always shown to mean arable, agriculture. But the greatest horticulturists of the world, the ones who literally showed other people how to till the land, was the Aryans of Ireland. Hmm. They were the ones who developed the plow, they were the ones who knew what seasons of the, under the moon and which seasons of the year to do the planting and harvesting on because after the great cataclysms, the earth wasn't the same and all of this knowledge was lost and people didn't even know how to harvest a, you know, a stick of corn in those days. <laughs> were, that's why they were living even until recent times off one plant. Right. Of course they were living off one plant. You're going to tell me that the Incas and the Mayas and the Irish are, Irish are eating only potatoes after how many thousands and thousands and thousands of years? 
It's because they've lost the tradition and the land is not the same. Huh. It's not because they were so stupid they could only you know, cultivate one, one uh, plant. No, they knew a lot about it in the past, but that knowledge had been devastated. There was trauma had happened through the earth changes, etc., etc. So this kind of knowledge was lost. Now, the word Celt, we need to get to that yeah, one. Yeah, let's well. do that, actually. I've got to know here that we have to define Celt and make yeah, sure we, we understand what that term. means. That is, that's more simple because it comes from K-E-L, Kel, and that simply meant the prominent or the great ones. Right, so the word Celt comes from that. It also comes from the word Kati, or Keltai, which used to mean those who were the builders in wood. And, the, and these words, Keltai and Kel, these are, these are Gaelic words. They're Gaelic words, and Augustus Laplongeon also discovered the Amayan connection to the Kelti. Huh. Yeah, and he, he discovered that in his reading of it, that the Keltai was a European people, definitely connected to the Celts, if not the same, who were the builders in wood. He said that they like to distinguish, even the word itself implied or co connotatively meant those who built their houses in wood and those who usually put some kind of wooden barrier around their houses, like a fence. Then he goes on to drop a bombshell. He claims that the Phoenician people, and this is exactly what Commons Beaumont, uh, excuse me, Connor McDary also said, and what I now believe, is that the Phoenicians are nothing but the Fenians of Ireland. The Phoenicians is another play on words. The Phoenicians was not some uh, Eastern maritime, you know, uh, peoples. These were the Celtic people, except ex instead of having their base in Ireland, which was far, far, far to west, the Celtic people sent their people out to Tyre and to Carthage, which were the famous cities of the Phoenicians. Right. But the word Tyre is another play on words. Tara in Ireland and Tyre in the Middle East are the same word. Mm. They're under the same goddess. Now, and the hey, same people were that we're worshiping. Hey, Michael, isn't isn't Terra another uh, area where there are mounds and cairns? It's the same. It's very close to the same place we're talking about. It's a little bit further north. Wow. Okay. These two places are connected. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But see, the word Tyre, which is the famous Phoenician capital, is the same word as Tyre. <sighs> Amazing. We've just been sold a pack of lies. Hmm. The greatest maritimers in the world who used to have the figure of the female, you know, on the prow of their ship. Right. These were the Celtic people. Now the word uh, Celti. What Le Plongeon and others drop on us is that, my God, was it not the Jews in, in the Holy Land who called the Phoenicians in to build their Temple of Solomon out of wood? That's because they couldn't do it themselves, and the Bible admits this, that the Solomon and it couldn't get anybody who had enough skill, so he called in a group called the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians. under Hiram Abbas, who was a great architect, who were the masters, builders in wood, say, hey, man, you know, we uh, worship this God, but we can't build a temple to him. Could you please do it for us? <laughs> right? Well, they did. And the famous Temple of Solomon is said to have been built by the Phoenicians. Now, well, this is accepted. Right. The part that I'm bringing in is that now we've got to accept another little part of this. The Phoenicians are the Phoenicians, or the Fenians of Ireland. Period. Remarkable. So we're connecting dots here, because when we accept this east-to-west migration, we have 40% of the truth. But we have 60% of answers we'll never answer, cannot answer, and we'll only ban truth to answer. Once we under, undertake the understanding that underneath those migrations, in earlier times, just after the great cataclysms of the world, there was vast migrations of the most enlightened people to all corners of the globe. This is why you find in the northern steppes of India, in the Himalayas, blonde children born with blue eyes. Yet they're born from pure Indian parents. It's a phenomenon known there. <laughs> That's why the Sikh uh, men, men of Sikh background, if, you, if, you, if they weren't so dark, you'd think that they were walking down in Stockholm in the main street. <laughs> why? Because of the aquiline features and the height you see in the bone structure. We have connections here between the Teutonic peoples and the Eastern people. We have 
Egyptian symbols of the of the boats, the serpent boat is very famous as Ra going across the sky and the boat that's shaped like a serpent. And then mm -hmm. we go to Scandinavia and find that the who who only else in the world uses the serpent shaped boats, you see? So we have the Vikings. So we have we have a immense network of lies to break through and that's what this whole Irish origins thing is gonna be doing is is, is is looking into this. We have a another word, the Gale. The highest Celtic people were called the Gaelic race. Right, the Gaelic people. That comes from the word, word Gal, G-A-L, which meant the white or the pure ones. We, yeah. That's where we get the word Galen today from, huh. or Galway. It's mistranslated as foreigners, although it also later in later times did mean the visitors. Sir Galahad, remember Sir Galahad? Sure. The that comes from Gal or the Gael. Galahad was literally the Gaelic one. Huh. That's all it meant. The son of the son of Lancelot of the Lake was Galahad, the Gaelic one. That's where we get Galway and Galilee and Galatia, you see, right. and Golan Heights. Huh. The Golan Heights, by the way, and this is absolutely provable, the latest, and I've known this for years, but I find it again in the works of the latest um, archaeologists, okay, the, the people who've written books within the last five years, that the term Golan Heights is called Golan because that's where the Celtic people of, of fair complexion had their, had their encampments and, and it lived. Wow, amazing. Yeah. These are secrets that have been kept from people. That the Sea of Galilee and the Golan Heights, these places were frequented by Western-type people. Wow, Michael. Hey, listen, okay. Um, you mentioned... I'm going to try to link two things and, and see if it works. You mentioned before that there was this story uh, in the Gaelic tradition about a, uh, a god-type man who, in a fit of rage, killed his son. Yeah. And then the sun uh, was planted, and then the uh, these amazing herbs came from this, and it's a yeah. wonderful story. It reminds me of the Osirian mystery, the Os the story of Osiris, right. and and I know that there's a connection between the Egyptian and the Irish. And is this uh, c c can we go there? Yeah, we can because I am absolutely convinced that there was a deep and ancient connection between the Egyptians and the the Gaelic. And remember I was talking about Andrew Power's book? Yes. Andrew Power is uh, talking about this uh, later on. We have to distinguish again between different epochs. When people, there's a bunch of scholars now, like a lady called Lorraine Evans. Look her up on the internet. Lorraine Evans, Kingdom of the Ark. Okay. Another book that people need to read, along with Andrew Power's Ireland, Land of the Pharaohs, because those two books are twins. Okay? They know each other, those authors, and mm -hmm. they are twin books. Okay. They are talking about what you're talking about, but at a later time in which migrations from Egypt came back huh. to Ireland, okay? This is the subject matter that has been accepted. It actually hasn't been accepted. Uh, even that is still controversy. Can you believe it? <laughs> but there is an absolute factual proof that many dignitaries uh, that were in Egypt, like Meritatan. Meritatan is the daughter of Akhenaton. Her grave is in Ireland, by the way. <laughs> Let me go even further than that. The first king of the first dynasty of Egypt is King Menes, M-E-N-E-S. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, but King Menes ain't buried in, in Egypt. King Menes is buried outside of Londonderry in Northern Ireland. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Wow, Let's what the amazing. Mummified baboons have been found in, in the caves, or the burial chambers of Irish queens. Skota, who is the name Scotland is named after, was the, was the daughter of a pharaoh who gave her name to Scotland. All right? She is buried in County Kerry, in, in, in Southern Ireland. Remarkable. Oh, yeah, we can get into a list of stuff. 
I'll get to your question in a minute, but there's two epochs to be aware of here. The Andrew Power and uh, Lorraine Evans are people who are now blowing the lid off a big lie, which is that we need to understand that there were migrations directly from Egypt all the way through Spain and up and, and, and on boats up into England and up into Ireland, and many of these people remained there and settled there, and that is one connection. However, they are talking about connections that are pretty much still in the A.D. periods, mm. right? Or at least at the time of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, coming into the 19th dynasty, so late. What I'm talking about is many thousands of years before that. The connection to the old, ancient, uh, stellar dynasties of Egypt and Ireland, in which the, it's not so much the migrations from Egypt to Ireland, but from Ireland to Egypt. Hmm. What I'm talking about is that it is actually the rising of Egypt comes from the Druidic order. That the whole principle of Pharaonic is another thing. It's another thing that's going to shock people because, of course, we've been told a pack of lies. Everybody's got onto this and trying to tell you about it, and then, and then are stumped over lots of other parts of it. Because, of course, if you get the, you know, as you put the cart before the horse, that's of course is what's going to happen. So that's the reason why you can't find the original, uh, you know, Egyptian written language. And that's the reason why you can't, can't account for the different uh, temples and shrines of knowledge that they had there, etc., etc., etc. Originally, what we have in the Nile Valley there is very much a kindred movement. If it wasn't completely originated by Druids, then it, had, then it was created by Egyptians, but it had a tremendous connection to the Druids. That means that also the Library of Alexandria, which mm. came later on, which mm. was considered, you know, um, Egyptian, that would have had many Gaelic books there, which might have been one of the reasons why it was burned down, because all these colleges throughout the world that I'm talking about, see, today we look back at the pedestal, we're, we're in the pedestal of the 21st century, looking back to ancient history. So when we look back to ancient history, it's normal to look at Egypt as being the standalone, absolutely outrageously unique, you know, a fantastic uh, civilization. Right, right. You know, yeah. And everything around it just looks like nothing, wasteland, right? That is the impression that we are meant to have. We, we're being conditioned to have that. Yeah, we're, we're learning not... more and more about these other, many right. other places around the world that are just as fascinating. And all of those people, the Etruscans, the Minoans, and do you know the Philistines, those famous Philistines that are being talked about in the book, in the Bible all the time, that right. David went out and killed Goliath? Right. The, the Philistines were of Celtic origin. Huh. Hey, let's talk about the Bible for a minute. Right. Um, first of all, the, let's talk about versions. I mean, I whenever I start talking about the Bible with anyone, I always say, "Well, so which which version are you talking about?" And that yeah. usually stumps them to begin with. But uh, 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 but maybe you could you could talk about the Bible a little bit, and then I want to talk about metaphor versus real history and this sort of thing a little bit. Oh, I'm all for that. I mean, we've got to realize. Just as I said earlier, that many of the terms that the Jews use for their own tribes and that they use for uh, the signs of the Zodiac are Gaelic terms. In exactly the same way as that, many of the idioms that are in the Bible are Celtic and Druidic in order. Now, Conor McDarrie has spoken about this at the turn of the century. Anna Wilkes has written on it. Um, Godfrey Higgins has, has spoken about it. And in more recent times, you have um, Jordan Maxwell, right. you know, talking about this, releasing this again to the world. We have the great archaeologist Glenn Kimball, who's been working on the Ohio right. Mound in America, right. digging out from those mounds all kinds of Celtic artifacts, not Native American Indian. Not that the Native American Indians have ever said it was theirs. See, the, the amazing thing about the Smithsonian is they must be stone deaf <laughs> because they keep telling you these are Native American Indians, and yet no Native American has ever said that it is theirs. 
Hey, you know, Michael, I want to ask you something on a side note real quick. There's a fascinating story that I've never really had a legitimate answer for, and it has to do with a, a discovery that happened in the Grand Canyon in Arizona yeah, yeah. back in, like, 1908 or something like that. Uh, and, and they found some sort of, like, Egyptian artifacts, I want to oh, say. Oh, yeah. Right. And all the commerce between the Americas and Egypt and the, and the commerce between the, the Irish and, and, and America is also needs to be fully understood. This is a, a, a topic that was brought up by the great American scholar Barry Fell. So people want to mm. get his book, America BC. You know, and if you go to my, remember the webpage I was mentioning, Astrotheology, page two? Yes, yes. There's a complete book list there of all the books and links that people need to check this out. So just realize that we're not just, you know, you know shooting hot air here. Yeah, and we'll put, we'll put a link up to, to that particular page as well as, uh, okay. as well as your, 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 uh, your homepage there, so. Yeah, so there is a lot of fascinating people, that, information that people need to get into. Regarding the Bible, though, and its interpretations, I mean, it's hardly the Word of God for a start. I mean, we have a... In a there's a guy called John Jackson who wrote a book called Pagan Origins of the Jesus Myth. Hmm. He's one of the people I refer to. He said that Matthew lists 28 generations from David to Jesus, while Luke, Luke tabulates 43. According to John, Jesus visited Jerusalem at least four times, but the synoptics, that's Mark, Luke, and Matthew, assure that he, he journeyed to that city only once. Right? When they talk about the length of Jesus' ministry, the synoptics say one year, but John says three years. From the synoptical account, we gather that the Savior carried out his work chiefly in Galilee, but John tells us that no, it was in Judea that the principal theater of the ministry of Christ. So look, you know, we've got, we have passages where there's at least 150 uh, different interpretations of one passage. You can get Bibles that have footnotes where there's 150 uh, interpretations of just one passage. Right. Yeah, you know, and you know, you mentioned Glenn Kimball a little uh, yeah. just a moment ago, and he's written some interesting stuff about that. Yeah. One of his earlier books was called "The Hidden Years of." or the early years of Christ or something like that I forget yeah. but it had to do with his youth and and there's a, uh, Egypt is involved and India is involved and all kinds of things well people you know if they go to the astrotheology page one I've been referring you guys to the astrotheology page two right which deals with the Irish origins of civilization if you stick on page one you're going to find all these facts about the Bible and its origins and the Jesus myth and where that all comes from again a lot of scholars have been dealing with that so we have a, you know people to thank like uh, Lawrence Gardner and others and uh, certainly uh, Ahmed Osman and others who've been delving a little deeper into who Jesus was, and that, that's kind of an important anecdote to do that, although, again, there's no consensus. And one of the reasons why there's no consensus is that they're all missing this piece that I'm talking about. My book and my DVD will be, not only, will be taking very strongly into account every author that has existed that has written, every author that has written on the Christ myth, you know, from Ralph Ellis, to Ahmed Osman, to Mustafa Gadala, you know, Lawrence Gardner, you know, you name the whole line of the people who've written recently on that subject, I will be canvassing and summarizing their work and showing how this missing piece, which is our topic tonight, the Irish origins, how when you insert that, it makes more sense. It makes more sense of St. Paul's work. One of the things I think that has to be very much understood is this, that when you're talking about, uh, and of course Jordan Maxwell has made this point, I don't know how many times, when you're talking about Jesus the man and Christ the God, you're talking about two different things. All right, well, I, w I was going to ask, I mean, um, two things. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I mean, you, you make the point that there's all, we don't know very much about Christ because there's all kinds of conflicting accounts. M most of what, what was written about him uh, was written 
at least 30, 40, 50 years after the fact, sometimes later, 70, 80 years, some of the Gospels were written. So, oh, God, hundreds you know, or, of years after and, the fact. Yeah, and, and then it went on and on, right. But uh, even the earliest stuff was quite a ways after his death, supposedly. So the question is, uh, first of all, do you believe that he was really a, his, a, an historical figure, a, a, a real walking person? And then the second uh, one was maybe we could address a little bit about the birthday and why Christmas is chosen. Nobody really knows when Christ was born. Why did they choose that date? Well, the, there's two dates that spring more to mind when you're talking about the birthday of Jesus. One is the, the, the winter solstice period. Right. Even if it may not be specifically, you know, the 25th, then we're talking, we have to understand that the as Easter a symbolic period. thing. Yeah, it was the solstice. Mm. It was the solstice. Um, the other date is January 6th which is the Jewish New Year, and that is because it goes back to Egypt, because Horus had a brother called Ion, A-I-O-N, and the twin of Horus was, you know, his birthday was January 6th, and Ion has also been connected to Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth. So if, you, if you're looking at it astrotheologically, which is another part of this, and that's why I make all my Irish origin stuff subservient to astrotheology, that's why it's on the page of astrotheology, because I don't want people to ever forget that it's the astromantic, astrological understanding of what we're talking about that comes first because that's what the ancient druids taught mm. so you can't be talking about druids and their and their particular philosophy you see with, and not talk about astrotheology the, the one and the same thing okay now uh, your second question was whether he was a, r a real figure or not the answer to that is both yes and no uh, the original jesus was again celtic the head of the druidic order or let's let's just say just in the same way that we would worship the pope today their high priest or their pope, it's really the third part of their trinity. Their trinity was Bel, Taron, and Esau. E-S-A or E-S-U. Esau or Essa, there's different ways of pronouncing this word, mm -hmm. is the origin of the Jessa or Jesus that comes later. People can read this on the Astrotheology page too. Now the third part of the Celtic trinity is the prototype that was the very first ever Jesus Christ. Christ came from the Celtic word Krios. And Krios literally meant a cross and a circle, mm. because they understood it was astrological, the sun and the zodiac. Mm. Krios was a word that they concocted that would sort of symbolize the cross and the circle, Krios. Iasa Krios is Celtic. Let's get, if, if nothing else is understood, you know, in this two hours, <laughs> let's just get that point across. Okay. And I, I prove it on the, on the website and we'll continue to do this in the books. And I hope that because we're in the age of truth that, you know, other scholars will, will get onto this. But Iasta Krios was the Celtic head Druid. He was the figurehead of the Druids, one of the most beloved sons of their trinity. This is how this image got picked up and emulated. Not Christians did it way, way, way later. First of all, the Egyptians picked it up as Horus and Osiris, just as you were referring just earlier on about the tremendous connections between Osiris mm. you see, and these deities, right. because they had their trinity as well, of Set, Horus, right. and Osiris. Horus, sure. Sure. Then the Brahmins have their Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Right. These right. deities also come out of the Celtic tradition. They are not, uh, they are not um, indigenous to India. Right. That's another lie. The okay. Brahmins are an extremely powerful cult in this world. Just in the same way that you have um, the Christian cult here and the higher echelons of the Vatican here. Hmm. Well, the Brahmins are not to be trusted either. Huh. The Brahmin hierarchy is another bunch of masculinistic, patristic, anthrocentric, god-lie worshippers who have crushed all the native and indigenous tantric religions there, who have everyone in subservience. Uh, when you say the word Hindu, it means practically nothing because it can mean anything to anyone. It's another one of these you know, catch-all phrases. Right. So we, we have a whole uh, work to do exposing the Brahmin 
whatever that is, and, and this whole idea that a human being can be untouchable because they happen to be of a lowly birth. Right. We in the West don't even know the meaning of the word of racism until you go over to India. I know, it's sickening. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. sickening. And then they're going to tell you that Krishna is going to come and bury them all when they're dead. You know, they're worshipping all these gods over there that have been handed to them by these Brahmin overlords, and yet they're starving. They've always been starving. They're in terrible shape, they're completely dumbed down and mind-controlled in a way in which makes Westerners look like they're free. Hmm. You know, yeah, it's a horrific yeah. subject. I know, and we, and we pump our money in there, and now we do all of our business oh, over there, oh. and it's all, you know, they're wonderful people in an up-and-coming nation and all this well, listen, shit. If you want to understand why India and China have been targeted by the Trilateral Commission in order to rise, and why jobs are being outsourced there, and what that's really all about, then you need to get into the ancient history of it and read a book that is most important. It's on my blog, and it's by Hoskins, and it's called, uh, let me just, I have to, while we're talking, I'll have to get onto the blog to actually uh, look it up correctly so that we're not in any doubt about. Here we are. It's, um, I always want to get the references correct here. Hoskins, is that what you said? Yeah, there's a brilliant writer. I've read most of his work. Here it is. It is um, Richard Kelly Hoskins. And the book is, can be found on Amazon, though it is a very rare book. So, you know, if you can get this book, get it. It's called In the Beginning. Huh. The Story of the International Trade Cartel. So the title wouldn't really let you know what it is. It's called, In the Beginning, The Story of the International Trade Cartel. Anyone in the sound of our voices who is interested in the real reasons as to why India is now, you know, uh, running shop and becoming the new first world while America and the West is becoming the next third world. <laughs> and we, we are, why is it that the, the rich of the West are called the Brahmin? You see, we have questions. We have questions about who these Brahmins are and what they're really about and are they serving India and who they really are. You know, there's a, that country, how many millions of people? Nearly a, bil a billion, probably even over yeah, a billion yeah, people, kept, a billion in, people. Yeah, kept in a servitude that they don't understand, that the West just, you know, thinks, oh, well, that's just them, they're just a bunch of wogs. You know, what can we expect? No, 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 no. Those people are oppressed. Those people are deeply spiritually confounded hmm. in a way that the West must take note of. And you want to know who the criminals are? I'll tell you who they are. They're the same Brahmin overlords, this group of people who has the audacity to say that a human being is lower than you that you can't touch yeah. you don't know what the meaning of the word apartheid means until you go over there the way they treat the people you know who, how dare we say that another human being is lower than you just because you're someone of higher caste is yeah. that a religion that is worth anything hey man I am fully with you I can't agree I mean I can't right. agree more and here it's absolutely is, sickening yeah. so. and then we find out through research like what I'm doing we find out this horror story actually originated from the druids the pure teachings of the druids mm. they took it second hand and have made this malarkey out of it. We find that the people who are calling themselves Jews today, who are not Jews at all, they're Jews by religious conversion and nothing else, have absconded with all of these terms that the ancient Druids used. The ancient Druids were the Judah. The original Judah, my friend, the original term Judah, came not from the uh, Israelites. In fact, what am I talking about? Even the word Israelite is a Celtic term. You go to my web pages, people can find the truth of this. There is a, a lot of evidence for this coming out of the works of Connor McDory and people like that. In the Book of Kings, uh, in fact, no, wait, in Genesis 49, yeah, maybe, chapter 10. Expand a little bit on, on, on the word Israelite. And, well, and the let's go to Judah word. first. All right. In Genesis 49, 10, it says kings will come from Judah. It's always said that it's from the tribe of Judah, or whatever that happens to be, that the kings will come. Well, guess what? The original Judah, or Judah, meant the... the, the uh, highest druids, the highest teachers of life. Huh. You know, that's right, and there, there, there's a passage uh, that, that talks about 
the tribe of Judah being, facing, uh, uh, being positioned in the east and facing the rising sun. Always wanting to think of the east. They're, they're yes. trying to tell you to face the east because they don't want you to look to the west. Huh, now, Israelite comes from Ayatha. Huh. The key, there's nothing more complicated than that. It is a Gaelic term. It comes from Ayatha, light. Those are followers of Ayatha. The Essites, the Ayathaites, or the Essaites. We get the word esoteric, and we get the word Essene mm. from the worshippers of Essa. Yeah, the Essenes. Because Essa was a worldwide solar deity whom the head druids would always, you know, mimic themselves on. That's what a Christed one was. A Christed one was one who had gone through the rituals of Ayasa Christ. Uh, the Essenes had one, the Brahmins had one, the Jains had one, Krishna and Krishna and Sir Trista, Trishna of the Arthurian legend right, all coming from Ayasa. You see, the idea was that you, you this was your tutelary deity. Right. This was your god. He was the sun god, and you, you looked and, up and to the sun. Michael, and, and, the, and the Christ mythology is, obvi is obviously a solar myth. Up, and it's a solar myth because the sun represented the light that you follow, the light that you emulate yourself on, because you are... Uh, one thing that Druidism... See, I'm not... I'm saying that that doesn't mean that Jews stop being Jews. I'm just saying, discover where your incredible religion comes from. In the Judaic religion, unlike Christianity, where some supernatural being pops out of the sky, uh, enlightens you, saves all your sins, and then you know takes you up to sit at the right hand of God, malarkey, the Jews have a much more deeper and sophisticated religion. They go, no, 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 in the Torah. You're going to live a life of moral purity. You're going to treat other people decently. Your synagogues are going to be egalitarian where anybody can be the priest did you know that in the synagogues the priest was just a sort of a, a, a guy that kind of cleaned things and looked after the general running of the temple there was no great uh, no hierarchy no yeah uh, now it's something else oh but yeah yeah back now. then in the days of old it was an egalitarian come all religion which had extreme open conversations amongst everybody about interpretation that had very few beasts with anybody it was extremely tolerant, and more importantly, they had the old Druidic, Dru Druidic teaching that you ain't getting to God through no intermediary, through some paganistic, you know, uh, fire god. You're going to live a pure and moral life. Well, you know something? That comes from Druidism. Now we turn to Christianity. Christianity says that you are a person who is of the light. You see? Yeah. This, and, and you follow the man of light. Sure. So the tenets of both of these religions are coming from Dru Druidism. They just don't tell you that. The very terms Judaic, Israelite, come from the, these things. Anyone who's done their homework truly. See, a rabbi, the word means abarai. It comes from the Celtic, from the Gaelic. And there's many other anecdotes relating to this. Hmm. Now, today, Jewish people don't know this because Jewish people are not true descendants of those ancient people. They're just like people like you and me who've converted down through the last few hundred years to a religion. Now, I'm sorry to upset some people, but, you know, you and I converting to the Baha'i religion, or, you know, you go out tomorrow and become a Mason, or, you know, you go and, you know, convert to, you know, whatever, right, become a Jain. <laughs> Hell, in the 60s, everybody converted to everything, didn't they? Right, right. Well, that's what Jews have done. Jews, since the 1700s and before, have basically converted to a religion. Eighty percent of the Jews today are called Ashkenaz Jews that come from the Khazars up in the Black Sea in uh, the Mongol hordes up in the Caspian Sea of Russia. They get nothing to do with the Holy Land. They're converted to a religion. And fine, they should stick to it and have no beef with them. But let's have facts as being facts. Huh, fascinating, Michael. Right? So, we're not even... How can... There's nobody today that as a Jew can say, I'm wrong. <laughs> because I'm not talking about you people. You guys are converted to a religion. Where did that religion come from? 
You say the Holy Land, but you know something? It came from before that. You haven't looked into that because nobody's ever bothered te you telling you that. Nor have you gone to the ancient legends and the ancient books to find out where the root word roots came from, where your deities came from, where your archetypes came from. Let me tell you something here, uh, uh, Mike, something incredible. One of the most powerful and most beloved stories in Ireland is the King of the Gaels. This is, the, remember, the highest cult of, of um, Druids was known as the Gaelic people, right? Uh -huh. The King of the Gaels was a character whose name was Nua, just like the, like, like the, the Aramaic Noah. And he brings his people from the islands that have been destroyed in great cataclysms. Nua, King of the Gaels, brings his people on great boats. He is told to build great boats and he brings his lost people to Ireland, and he's called King Nua or Nada. Amazing. Now, his right-hand man is Lu, the sun god. Lu is a young man who is what they call in Gaelic um, Sama Ildanach, which means the master of all the arts. He doesn't rule as king, but he basically is the king. He's, he's, not as, he's under Nada. He's under the king. But Lu, in his adventures, during the great battles that they have with these uh, hybrid sort of demonic beings that have inhabited Ireland, they've infested the place, so the Gaels have to do battle with these ancient ones. Lu has to ride out against their giant. And the giant is called Baelor of the Evil Eye. And Baelor is a huge, monstrous giant with this huge eye that can just annihilate people. And the young Lu comes out on horseback, and his weapon is a sling. <laughs> wow. And the young boy king comes out, and by the way, Lu is a great harpist. But Lu comes out with a sling and kills Baelor the Evil Eye with a sling, all right? It goes on and on and on yeah. and on. Nothing right down to the nothing. changeling. Yeah, the whole thing is Celtic Druidism, thousands of years before the Jews ever got hold of it. Michael, we are at the end of our time, and that is amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's nothing it new under the sun, and all these stories, these are the same stories. I mean, it's the David yeah. and Goliath story, obviously. But so. see, I'm a purist, and I want to know where the origin of this is. Yes. I've got, I'm not interested in, in telling Christians or Jews what to do. I am a scholar. And I'm a purist. It is my interest to find out where these facts came from. If you want to do the same thing, then come along for the ride, anyone who's interested. You know, leave our prejudice behind. Let's discover who we are, this magnificent mystery of history of who we are. I'm not into putting, you know, pitting forces against each other. I'm looking for the truth so that we can have the truth and then enjoy who we are. Well said, Michael. I am fully with you. And uh, we will... Uh... Uh, have to get back and do this again. We have so well, much more to talk about. And we have a lot more to do, and when the DVDs are out, you know, we can come out, we can discuss those. It'll be great. All right, sounds great. So, uh, everybody, there you have it. Uh, Michael Tsarian, one more time, Michael, let's give out the website. Uh, it is Terascopes, T A R O S C O P E S. Correct. Dot com. Yeah, that's the main site. And then, uh, let's see, what was it? Um, Origins and Oracles. Origins and Oracles, yeah. yeah. Origins and Oracles dot com. O R I G I N S and Oracles dot com. Uh, that is a whole website dedicated to the to the DVDs. They have their own website because they're a unique phenomena. It's a whole series that goes into forbidden knowledge and ancient mysteries. And I wanted it to have a, its own site so people can go there without having to plow through all the other stuff on Terrascopes. So originsandoracles.com for those who are interested in the DVDs, yeah. All right, perfect. Yeah, and Terascopes is amazing, and there's a tremendous amount of information there as well. So. Yeah, go to the Astro Theology pages and learn about the Irish origins of civilization, this most incredible hidden piece that's been kept from mankind for thousands of years. Romans came in their hordes to murder all the Druids. You know that? They cornered them in Anglesey in Wales and butchered them all to a man and a woman. Oh, my God. Wiped them off the face of the earth. That's how this lie called Christianity and this Vatican... Uh, lie, the super lie, this mind-rotting religion. How could that have r lived, you see, if, if Druidism was alive throughout the world? So 
so they had to get rid of the Druids in order for this pestilential monopoly to, to, to exist. So they sent the Roman hordes, the barbarians of Rome, out to slaughter them to a man. And you know yeah. what, uh, Mike, Michael, they, they, uh, they did a damn good job, but they didn't get everybody. No, they didn't. Yeah. See, we have the Conor McDarries to thank and, and the Anna Wilkes to thank, but these, these devils did this, and these people that they murdered, why this is of importance to us is that these people are spiritual forefathers. These people were the enlighteners of the old. We owe everything that we have today, our buildings, our knowledge, our alphabets, our communication skills, the knowledge we have of flora and fauna. We owe it to the graves of these great ones to resurrect their knowledge, their memory, so that we have a purpose for our life. We have given so much of our energy to false ones and to liars and malcontents and swindlers. It's time to turn from these demagogues and resurrect the teachings of the great high ones, the pharaohs of Egypt and the druids of Ireland. And then we will find purpose and meaning in our life, and the gods will then start to intercede on our behalf. When we turn back to them, then we can expect help from them. Michael, thank you very much, my friend. Uh, you're most welcome, Michael. <laughs> All the best. I'll be in touch. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, there you have it. Michael Tsarion. Whew. All right. We've got about one minute left. Come on back next week. My guest will be John Lash. And uh, you can find out information about John at metahistory.org. In the meantime, uh, make sure you check out Michael's material, of course, at periscopes.com and originsandoracles.com. This is Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. I'll finish things off here with one more from my friend Enrique Palmgren. This is Leek with Resign and Step Back. And you can find out information about uh, Henrique and his music, of course, at redice.net slash L-E-E-Q. That's red-ice.net slash L-E-E-Q. And uh, thanks to Henrique for providing the music tonight, and thanks to Michael for providing amazing information and wonderful conversation. Thanks to everybody. We'll talk to you next week.